Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we're releasing a special episode that is a collection of some of my favorite moments from this last year, 2022, of Boundless Body Radio. We hosted so many great guests and had so many great conversations. It was really difficult to narrow this down as much as I did, and I still imagine that this will be a very long episode. Before I talk a little bit more about the premise of this episode, I just want to share some of our stats from 2022 that I'm just super proud of. I think this is super cool. Boundless Body Radio generated 138,480 downloads around the world. So that is way more than I ever imagined that this show would ever reach. Um, We also are ranked 132 on Apple for fitness podcasts here in the United States. That's as of the date of this recording, which is January 1st, 2023. So that's also super cool. We have a 4.9 star average rating, which is amazing. We've gotten so many positive reviews and amazing feedback from people. So we really appreciate all the ratings and reviews, especially on Apple. It really helps other people to find our show. My favorite my favorite rating that we got was a one star which is the one that's kind of dragging us down to the 4.9 star average uh said something i'm going to paraphrase this but it said something like i really like the show the host's voice is absolutely terrible i basically have to like fast forward through every time that he talks but the guests are really good so uh thank you very much for that i appreciate that i wish you would have given us like a two star or three star review for having great guests whatever you think of my voice is totally fine but i thought that was pretty funny anyway as we started back Boundless Body Radio, I really thought that I wanted to have a general scope of all kinds of things, health and fitness. And we certainly have been able to talk to lots of different leaders in the health and fitness space on many, many, many different topics, which is kind of what I wanted. But as I was going through and trying to select which clips to use in this episode, I was really noticing that the ones that had the most comments, the most likes, the most views on YouTube, the most downloads were really all about nutrition. And they were really um, in the kind of keto space, the low carbohydrate space, which we do a lot of episodes on. And so that's kind of what this episode is going to be. I didn't intend for it to be that way, but so many people you comment on our carnivore episodes or the, you know, the difference between the plant-based movements um, and the carnivore movements. And anyway, we just found that a lot of people were talking about that and they really like to listen to that. So that's what this episode is going to be largely all about nutrition and some of the highlights from people in the low carbohydrate or carnivore or fasting space. So we're just going to get right down to it. I'm going to try to stay out of the way as much as possible and just tell you who the next clip is going to be and where you can go check out that full episode. So our very first clip is from episode 347, uh, which was released on October 5th, 2022. And this episode is titled Unsettled Science with returning guest Nina Teichels. I think when a lot of people talk about The Big Fat Surprise, which is a fascinating book, I don't know why I let it surprise me every time I read it, which is now probably like five or six times. I, I get something new out of it every time. It's so good every time. It's a big book, and it's really entertaining. I love it. And, and you know, when I hear you talk, I hear you talk about guidelines and Ansel Keys and, you know, the story around cholesterol. And that's a big part of this story. But there's other parts of your book where you go in depth into other things, including the Mediterranean diet, which I think is absolutely fascinating. And I found it quite interesting when I asked some of my clients, like, what is the Mediterranean diet? They can pretty much tell me like, oh, it's, it's, you know, it's fish and fruits and vegetables and lots of grains. You start asking like a few questions and all of a sudden people start to kind of break down, like where in the Mediterranean does that come from? They go, oh, I don't know. Like, okay, well, is this eating like France or like Egypt or like Israel? Or like Greece, like which one is it? And when was this taken? Was this taken like 20, 30 years after World War II? 
or was this more recent? And so you do such a great job. So I, I, I would want to know if we could start there and talk about some of the things you learned about the Mediterranean diet. Yeah, I, I, that book chapter in my book um, on the Mediterranean diet is still, I believe, the only critical appraisal of the Mediterranean diet, like a really comprehensive critical appraisal. And I think one of the, the headlines to come out of that chapter is the Mediterranean diet as a commercial concept, as a diet in the, you know sold across and, and promoted across the United States, um, that was produced and created by the International Olive Oil Council. Right? This is an organization based in Europe that wanted to increase the sales of olive oil. And how did they do that? They hosted a series of best ever conferences all around the Mediterranean and they, along with other food companies. And they invited the who's who of the nutrition establishment in the United States. They invited food writers. They always had somebody from Harvard. They, um, they had these I mean, people who went to those conferences in the nineties, um, describe them as like the most fantastic events where there was literally like, um, little bottles of olive oil tucked in your gift bag and the most incredible ever food and hiking up the mountains of Greece to come back to homemade bread by made by the women of the village. That was all a, a, a produced by these food companies led by the Olive Oil Council that wanted to, to sell olive oil to Americans. Very successful. I mean, we, I'm old enough to remember, and you probably aren't, but when olive oil was sort of appeared on the table of all restaurants and was sort of became something that we all dipped our bread in, that wasn't true when I was a young child. So, so that is where the diet became commercialized. But what was it before then? Before then, it, it was many diets around the Mediterranean, as you described, they, you know, in Greece, they eat much more lamb than they do in, um, you know, in in uh, other parts of the Mediterranean. They, the diet in the south of France is different than the diet in the south of Italy. I mean, there's differences in every amount of food they eat and the type of food they eat. And what I realized was, so so stitching together this diet and to call it one diet has never made sense scientifically. And who created the term the Mediterranean diet is our old friend Ansel Keys, right? He, before he became um, sort of known to us as the person who presented the diet heart hypothesis, and partly where that hypothesis came from, the idea that saturated fat and cholesterol are bad for you, he was obsessed with the Mediterranean as a region to visit. Like I, I write about how he's on um, he's at on sabbatical at an English university, an university in England, and it's cold and it's rainy and the weather is dull, as they say in England. And he and his wife decide to take a train to the Mediterranean where everything is sun-kissed and beautiful. Post-World War II, everything is cheap. And he falls in love with the Mediterranean. Like, don't we all? <laughs> and he ends up having a, having, building a home there. But he travels around to different places in the Mediterranean. And that's where he got his original idea that, that saturated fat, that meat uh, was probably bad for you. Saturated fat was probably bad for you. But he was uh, examining these countries 
after they had lost this war, you know, there had been millions of people who had left Greece. Millions of people had been dislocated in Italy. Food supply chains had been disrupted and had not been rebuilt. The most famous place that he visited and kind of the like the epicenter of the idea of the Mediterranean diet is the island of Crete. Okay, so this was a place where seemingly long lived villagers toiled away. They seemed to eat almost no animal foods, but but were very healthy. Keyes visited that um, island three times with his team. One of the times that he visited, he showed up during Lent. Right. So that is a period. The Greek Orthodox Lent is a very strict one where no animal foods are allowed. And he knew that it was that this was a problem and would confound his data. But nevertheless, he decided to go with the data as it was. Um, and so he profoundly undercounted the amount of animal foods that they regularly ate by measuring their diet during Lent. In the end, he only had data on 30 to 33 men, only men, from the island of Crete. So this is a tiny, tiny, tiny sample. And it turns out that his samples in every one of the seven countries that he visited, he visited 11 locations in seven countries, the data sizes of his samples was was about 30 to 35 people in each of these countries. Tiny. I mean, not a representative sample by any means. But out of this, he wrote a, he and his wife wrote a cookbook called Eating, I think it's called Eating the Mediterranean Way or Living the Mediterranean Way. And that was the first text on the Mediterranean diet based on 30 to 33 men. A little before he arrived, the Rockefeller Foundation had done a study on the same, on the island of Crete also, where they found when they interviewed the villagers the most common thing that they heard was that they wanted more meat, that they used to eat more meat and they were sadly deprived of it. And that their word for Lent was the same word for um, sunken or, you know, a woman who looked like she was a witch because she wasn't adequately nourished. They, they did not associate Lent with healthfulness and they had remembered eating more meat as children and hoped to return to that. But they're, um, and that was what they craved the most. They equated it with virility, power, health. But that was not the impression that Ansel Keys took away from the island or the impression that he then promoted to the rest of the world. So let's fast forward from Ansel Keys, who was there in the um, 50s and maybe early 60s, but I think mainly the 50s. Fast forward to Walter Willett at Harvard University. He's enamored with Keyes in his office at Harvard when I interviewed uh, uh, Walter Willett. The picture on his wall is of him shaking the hands of Ansel Keyes wow. in some Mediterranean country. So you can imagine the baton being passed from Ansel Keyes to Walter Willett, who picks it up, goes to the Mediterranean absolutely falls in love like keys with Mediterranean food, dines out with the Greek scholars, uh, finds the, just finds it, uh, like a, an explosion of flavors in his mouth. And he falls in love with the Mediterranean diet. He does his own work in, uh, the Mediterranean. Um, but basically he, most of his data is based on, on the data that came from Ansel Keys. So he doesn't really amplify that data set. So, but he comes out with 
his Mediterranean, Harvard Mediterranean food pyramid, which is pretty much like the food pyramid we all know, which is the huge bottom slab is all grains um, and then comes fruit and vegetables. The difference with Walter Willett's Mediterranean pyramid is that in the tiny, tiny tip is red meat, worse even than sugar. You could eat more sugar than meat, according to Walter Willett. And he described it as being bathed all in olive oil. So olive oil was this very important component of this diet. This study that seemed to underpin the whole effort. I mean, so sorry, let me just backtrack. Walter Willett came out with this pyramid, no clinical trials on the Mediterranean diet, right? Very popular, a great idea, but no clinical trials really showing that it had any benefits for health. The act, you know, a Mediterranean diet, however you define it. Um, so finally, various food companies got together and sponsored a trial that took place in Spain called the PrediMed trial. And that's that it was an interventional trial, right? In one group, they gave them, they, they told them to change their diet. They told them to, um, I mean, it was really strange, like eat more sofrito, which is like this Spanish dish that, that, you know, has no correlate really in the U S and, and they told people to eat less fat, um, on the Mediterranean diet. It turns out that the group that ate the so-called Mediterranean diet, did not reduce their red meat consumption. So they weren't actually looking at any difference in meat. At the end of this trial, uh, sorry, as the trial was happening, like two or th uh, three years went into the trial, which is a pretty long, that's a good long trial. They stopped it because they said the benefit was so huge from the Mediterranean diet that they couldn't ethically keep continuing this trial. Um, and in the end, they, you know, they found what they thought was a significant benefit in terms of cardiovascular outcomes. There was no, no other benefit, not weight, not uh, other metabolic benefits, but there was, it appeared, a benefit for heart attacks, death from heart disease. Later, when Richard Feynman, who is um, a scholar at um, Downstate uh, CUNY here in New York, he looked at the actual absolute benefit, which is to say not the relative risk, but the absolute difference in risk, and it was point to the, the difference was 0.2 in terms of, the, you know, the people who were on the diet had a, just the tiniest little bit of benefit compared to the people who were not on the diet. So, um, so in the end, that trial is not as impressive as we think. And uh, quite a bit later, it had to be retracted and republished in the same day, which I think is a First, I've never seen that happen anywhere else where the authors are allowed to republish on the same day that they retract a paper. Wow. They obviously knew about the retraction ahead of time. They were able to, and it was the New England Journal of Medicine that allowed them to do that um, because it turns out that the trial had actually not been properly randomized. Um, and there were another, other problems with the study that John Ioannidis pointed out in a paper that he did on PrediMed where he looked at the various not just randomization, but other problems with that paper. So that's the main trial for the Mediterranean diet. In other trials of the diet, and there has now been quite a few, and I'm talking about clinical trials now that can show cause and effect, the, um, the benefits for weight are very, very modest. And when compared to a low-carbohydrate diet, they're, they're uh, not as impressive as a low-carbohydrate diet. Now I'm referencing a, um, a meta-analysis that was done not too long ago. And 
Um, and the cardiovascular outcomes were also very moderate, not as good as a low carbohydrate diet when compared to, to low carb. So in all the Mediterranean diet, however you want to define it, uh, is not superior to what we've seen now in multiple clinical trials for a low carbohydrate diet. This next clip is from episode 281, released on May 23rd, 2022, titled The Protein to Energy Diet Part 2 with Ted Naiman. I do want to talk about exercise with you, but before we do, let's deep dive a little bit into the PE diet, you know, strategy and, you know, kind of how you explain it for people that maybe are less familiar with it, the protein and minerals on one side, the energy on the other side. Can you, can you kind of explain what that means and how you've been able to distinguish those two? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, there's really only three things you're getting from your diet. And so plants make food for every animal. And so plants make all the food for themselves and then animals come along and eat the plants and that's how they get their food. So we're basically just eating plants or animals that eat plants, but it all comes from plants. And plants are really doing two things. They're chaining together carbons and hydrogens, making these high energy bonds uh, in molecules that are really just carbons and hydrogens and oxygen, and that's your carbohydrates and hydrocarbons, which are fats. And carbohydrates and hydrocarbons or fats are really just chains of high energy carbon, 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 hydrogen bonds. It's just pure energy. That's it. That's all that's there is energy. And you're eating carbs and fats to get this energy. And uh, humans can live on like super high carb, super low fat, or super high fat, super low carb, very interchangeable. And if you interchange them calorically, Really, nothing happened. The other thing plants are doing is sucking minerals up from the soil. There's a couple dozen minerals that are essential to life. And uh, uh, the most notable, which is nitrogen absorbed from soil in a mineral form, which is the basis of all your amino acids, which is the basis for all your proteins, which make up all the structural components of your body and most of the functional components of your body too, your hormones and your enzymes and all the things that do all the work. So basically your, your whole structure and function of your body is built around protein, which is this nitrogen um, containing amino acids that plants make using nitrogen from soil, and then carbs and fats just purely for energy, which uh, plants get from carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and solar energy from the sun. And that's what photosynthesis is. You just use sun energy and carbon dioxide to chain together a bunch of carbons and hydrogens and oxygen. And so uh, if you really zoom out and look at it, then you're kind of eating to get the protein slash nitrogen slash minerals versus the carbon-based energy, which carbon fats are kind of uh, interchangeable. And so you can kind of look at your whole diet in a protein to energy lens, if you know what I mean, or uh, basically a nutrient like uh, protein and amino acids and uh, minerals versus uh, pure energy, which is just interchangeable hydrocarbons or carbohydrates. Um, I think the, the bodybuilding community has known this for a long time. They, you know, a lot of bodybuilders will tell you, it just comes down to protein and calories. And I'm, I'm stealing heavily from that with the PE diet concept, which is really just looking at protein and calories essentially. And it's, uh, kind of a useful metric. I mean, it's a, it's a useful way of just looking at your diet in general. And the book is really all about just breaking down different foods and how to look at foods through this lens of protein uh, and protein density versus non-protein energy density. 
Yeah, that's a great explanation. I'm hoping for the listener, this is fairly obvious at this point, but for somebody who's listening to this and wondering like, well, where did we go wrong in 2022 with our food landscape? Why do we see so many people unhealthy based on those principles? Where did we end up going wrong? Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So if you look at a worldwide hunter gatherer macronutrient estimates, they're eating like 33% of calories from protein. Because if you just go outside right now and kill any wild game type animal and eat the whole thing, and then just find uh, whatever nuts and berries and fruits and vegetables you can find, uh, you're going to be eating about 30 you know, a 30 something percent of your calories from protein. It's really easy. So if you're a hunter gatherer, it's just brain dead simple. You just go out and, you know, kill animals, find uh, anything edible, plant foods, eat whatever you can. And boom, you're at this super high protein percent, uh, awesome nutrient density, energy levels, perfect. Um, if you're, you know, some, sometimes the protein is so high that you're kind of starving for extra energy. And that's why you'll see hunter gatherers just like killing themselves to get like some honey, uh, or some extra animal fat from like bone marrow or something. They're just basically going out of their way to find any concentrated <clears throat> source of energy. Cause they're, they're flying the calorie plane pretty low on non-protein energy. They've got enough protein and they're looking for a little extra energy to add to it. You know, if you, uh, gave them a couple donuts, they would be like ecstatic. Right. But then what happened in the modern food environment is we figured out how to suck all the calories out of, uh, certain types of food, uh, as sugar and flour and oil, basically just pure refined carbs and fats. So we sucked all the sugar and flour and oil and, and non-protein calories out of these foods. And they have an amazing half-life of like forever, like a shelf life for a million years. And they're, um, you know, basically super cheap now. They last forever. Uh, the combination of high energy density carbon fats is super tasty and delicious and addictive. So you can uh, sell this stuff as junk food and it's just really tasty. Um, and now if you look around your food environment, all the foods in your environment are massively diluted uh, with these added carbs and added fats, you know, sugar, flour, oil, and it's diluted out all the protein. So now the protein percent of standard American diet is like 12.5%. And as the protein percent's gone down, obesity has just gone up and up and up. And uh, that now that's not just America, but the entire planet where, you know, about 91% of Americans are over fat and about 76% of the entire planet is over fat. And the biggest contributor is uh, nutrient dilution, with basically carbs and fats, like empty calorie carbs and fats. And if you if you look at the past 60 years of the obesity epidemic and what people ate back then and what people eat now, the protein grams are, boom, exactly the same. Like within like 10 grams of before the obesity epidemic and after. And that's because of protein leverage. Protein is very tightly regulated. You pretty much just eat until you get enough protein. So we're eating the exact same amount of protein that we were before, it's actually a little bit higher just because we all have larger bodies now with a higher protein requirement. But um, essentially the grams of protein before and after obesity epidemic, it's exactly the same, but carbs and fats each went up by about two or 300 calories a day. So like everybody's eating like an extra two, 300 calories of carbs a day, extra two or 300 calories of fat per day. And that's because every single food you eat has added carbs and fats dumped in there, protein dilution. And you're going to eat till you get the same amount of protein, but you're going to overeat carbs and fats to get there. And everyone just slowly gets fatter and fatter and fatter. And that's pretty much obesity in a nutshell. It's not only pushed forward by the protein dilution from carbs and fats, but also the fact that these high energy density carbs and fats together 
are super tasty because that's like ice cream and donuts and pizza and candy bars. And it's all um, uh, what I call the trifecta, which is uh, high carb, high fat, high energy density all combined. Your uh, it really lights up your brain. Your your brain loves it when you get anything really high carb, really high fat, really high carb and high fat, high energy density, because it's super rewarding because uh, basically if you're a hunter gatherer and you hunt and gather all day and you know, you expend 10,000 calories and all you get is like some lettuce and some, you know, super lean gamey little squirrel or something. Yeah. You're the, the return on your investment is so low. You got, you know, expended so many calories, you get so few calories. You're like, ah, oh, this sucks. But if you, uh, if it only takes you five minutes and you find like a donut, this is like the most amazing return on investment ever. And so from an evolutionary point of view where we, you know, we're facing starvation, this is like amazing. And this is just lights up your brain. And now that we've got like Uber eats and I can just like press one button and boom, at my front door is like the tastiest, high energy density, high carb, high fat, addictive, hedonic, protein diluted combination of whatever I want. That's the most tasty thing ever. Uh, that was like the final nail on the coffin, you know, because it's all about ease and availability. <clears throat> and if it's easy and super available to get this stuff, you're just going to eat it. And boom, now everybody's over fat. This next clip is from episode 310, released on July 25th, 2022, and this clip is titled Toxic Superfoods with returning guest Sally K. Norton. So I always just pictured the crystals as being the damaging part of oxalate, but it's it's more than that, right? When these things get into our body, can you describe some of the ways, you know, besides like the physical, um, that they're, they're harming us? Yeah. And I've got an Instagram post that shows like the form. So there's oxalic acid, it shows the chemistry, and then it shows you that it goes into nanocrystals and microcrystals and the plant shapes. So when you're eating the plant shapes, you're basically eating ground glass, really tiny microscopic ground glass. You don't notice it, but it's there. And that just sort of roughs up your intestinal tract and can be, you know, damaging physically as a mechanical toxin but it's the acid, the free acid. And more of it is freed up by our stomach, which is a very acidic environment. The acid of our stomach can dissolve a little bit of these crystals. So there's some of what we call insoluble, probably becomes a little more soluble thanks to the stomach. And that acid floats in the water. It's such a tiny molecule right into the blood between the cells. So it doesn't have to get into cells. It just gets into the blood and starts floating around in the blood. Now you've got the crystals and the exposure to the ions in the gut cells, but now it's in the blood cells, the blood cells within 40 minutes, the immune cells that are circulating in your bloodstream are showing oxidative stress and damaged mitochondria. And now they're starting to put out pro-inflammatory cytokines into the system. And they've moved from like a nice little immune cell to somebody who's like having a problem. It's been injured. It's telling the whole body, hey, something's here bothering me. This pro-oxidative event is occurring. So now you're, you're damaging. And I think the degree to which that happens, there's a lot of variability from person to person. And they had, there's only been one study that's bothered to even look at that. It's a pretty recent study, and I don't know if anybody will bother to fund additional studies on that. But clearly we know that oxalic acid is not healthy for membranes. It depolarizes them, and the mitochondria is a membrane. And you don't even have to physically touch the cell as long as it's in within 
sort of electromagnetic earshot, you might say, you can start affecting these mitochondria. And the blood that comes from your stomach and comes from your small intestines and your colon, all of that that's draining the food and nutrients and oxalic acid out of your food, it goes straight to your liver, right? Your liver has to clean up whatever you're absorbing for your food to protect the rest of the body. The liver has no way to get rid of the oxalate. It doesn't detox oxalate. It actually makes more oxalate. So after the blood goes to the liver, it, it's got more oxalate than it had than it got out of your spinach smoothie and your sweet potato. But in the meantime, your poor liver is dealing with oxalic acid after every meal for four to eight hours after every meal. And this uses up a lot of glutathione and some of the natural antioxidant power that protects your liver. The liver does a pretty good job of protecting itself, but chronic high oxalate meals day in and day out, like I did forever, can land you into chemical sensitivity, uh, alcohol intolerance, um, you know, fragrances bother you. And some of that's probably the wear and tear on the liver. And so it's messing up the liver, it's messing up your immune cells, and it hasn't even gotten very far. <laughs> it hasn't gone anywhere yet. It's next stop, it, you know, the liver has this vein that drains the vein and it takes it straight to the heart. So it passes through the diaphragm. And interesting enough about the diaphragm, the diaphragm is an innervated muscle that has to help you breathe in and out. And sometimes if the nerves aren't happy or the muscles aren't happy, you get in these spasms called hiccups. Well, a hiccup is a neurotoxicity symptom and you can make the vagal nerve and the nerves of the body toxic with oxalate. So this is what used to happen to me at bedtime after my lovely healthy dinner of sweet potatoes and whatever, I would have attacks of hiccups and then belching. Belching is another reaction to oxalate, some kind of bloating and belching and intestinal distress. These were all happening like clockwork at bedtime, almost every night for years. I often felt I was going to break a rib. It was so awful. Yeah. Hiccups are like kind of funny for a minute and then not so funny after a while. And I, it, it just occurred to me, I, I, I used to get hiccups all the time, but since I've been more strict carnivore, I can't remember the last time I've gotten them. It's so funny. Because that was a neuro reaction, a neurotoxic reaction to oxalate probably. Wow. Wow, that's crazy. I know we talked about this last time. I didn't time. even know that. I didn't even know hiccups was a neurotoxicity sign until I started reading all these oxalate cases where people get really sick or die on star fruit, which is very high in oxalate. And um, one of the, the last symptoms before either the human or the rat in the rat study dies is hiccups. Like right at the end, you start getting hiccups. <laughs> that's oh crazy. <laughs> crazy. Yeah. I had no idea any of that is so, so interesting as we're going through. Yeah. Like we haven't even got far in the body. Like we've already wrecked the digestive system, the, the immune cells, the liver function, the diaphragm and its nerves and the vagal nerve aren't too happy about all this. And then the next organ that gets, gets all the oxalate that you absorbed plus the stuff the liver just made goes to your heart. The heart really needs its calcium, by the way. The blood has to have a certain calcium level in order to have the pacemaker work well. And if a lot of oxalate is coming in or coming out of your tissues, this happens more frequently with the after you quit eating oxalate, actually, where oxalate's not coming from your digestion anymore, it's coming from your bones or your thyroid gland. 
you get a loss of calcium in the blood enough to start disturbing the heart rate and you get some arrhythmias, heart palpitations, elevated blood pressure. Some people feel like they're going to have a heart attack or stroke and they end up in the emergency room with an electrolyte crash. That's what's happening. They're having an electrolyte crash. So this is another big thing. You get major disturbance in electrolytes and electrolyte management in the body. And this is happening both on the way in and as oxalates leave. So managing and, uh, you know, replacing, replenishing all the electrolytes, not just the calcium, which is super important, um, is, is an issue. But that's the same reason why the, the spasms are happening in the nerves and in the muscle, because in order for nerves or muscles to work, there's this little calcium ion in the cells that's being carefully managed in order for the cell to do its job of saying, do this, do this, don't do that. And oxalate can grab or chelate that calcium and completely disturb the cell function, which makes total sense that you can't have, you can't keep flooding your cells with something that messes up calcium and have cells. This is the main way that oxalates toxicity is working is through disturbance of calcium regulation in cells and disturbance of electrolytes around the cells in the interstitial fluids and in the blood. Wow. This is maybe a good time to ask you. I, I wanted to ask you last time and I kind of forgot when I was growing up and eating peanut butter sandwiches, which would, you know, peanuts are very high in oxalate, I believe. I never liked to drink milk, but when I had peanut butter sandwiches, I loved drinking that with skim milk. Could that possibly be why? Uh, you know, it's a very good theory. I think kids are instinctual a lot about eating and that's a very good theory that you needed calcium and that experience of eating. And of course, but peanut butter has this thing of sticks on your roof of your mouth and does weird things. And it's like, you got to wash it down with something. This next clip is from episode 384, released on December 14th, 2022, titled Religion, Blue Zones, and the Plant Slant with Belinda Fecky. It, until you look back into history, you cannot understand where the plant bias messaging is coming from in today's society. You honestly can't. And I think that was what I was just blown away with when I started looking at sanitarium here in Australia, owned by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And as an aside, they pay no tax because it comes under the charity status of the church. So they pay no tax. I imagine worldwide on their 21 food industries, which produce over two and a half thousand different products to take the place of flesh meat, milk and butter. And they in Australia, Sanitarium pays no tax on their health and wellness programs, which they run in church and communities and in corporate businesses. And, and the Sanitarium um, health and wellness programs are run in America as well. So, you know, it's like they're a hub. I, as I say, the footprint's really small, but their influence is massive. And Sanitarium doesn't just go to America, it goes to Asia, um, the UK, and out into the South Pacific. Their influence out there, specifically with health and wellness programs, with their 10,000 Toes campaign, but it's it's under the umbrella of sanitarium. So people don't question because it's not under the umbrella of the church. Yep. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, it's how they get this message through. I was saying yesterday, you know, they're the second biggest educators in the world, despite the fact there's only 21 million people actually as part of the church. So it's not a big church and yet their influence is massive and health and wellness education is just such a big part of this um, messaging. So I, I'll jump back to 1844 just quickly so people get a little bit of an idea. Um, William Miller said it was going to be the end of the world. 
in October 1843. And then when they reworked a few of the numbers, it became October 1844. Ellen G. White was part of a group. She was 17 years old at the time in 1844. <clears throat> Jesus didn't come back. Apparently there were 100,000 people who were completely believing that this was going to happen. Wow. Some people had sold their houses. Some people, many people had given up their work. A lot of people, most people had given up their other church, you know, a lot of churchgoers, they'd given up their churches and come to be part of this Millerite movement. They were really thinking it was going to be the end. And so, oh, my gosh, suddenly it wasn't the end. Ellen G. White had a vision that the, it wasn't the wrong date, it was the wrong event. <clears throat> to explain it all. So this is where the Seventh-day Adventist Church was born out of this great disappointment. So this great disappointment happened. Her vision, God told her she was taken to heaven. She was told that atonement wasn't completed at the cross, which is what the Second Testament identifies. You know, this is, this is what Martin Luther was talking about. I mean, he's the Reformation. It's about faith, and this happened at the cross. Ellen G. White said, no, 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 it didn't. It started there, but only a little bit. What happened was in 1844, Jesus moved from his holy place to his most holy place. He went to the second apartment and there he started his work. And I was saying to Jake and Marin, you know, the scary part is for a lot of people in the Seventh-day Adventist church is you don't know. So say that your name came up yesterday, Casey. And Jesus went through and, and blotted out your sins, but you don't die for another 20 or 30 years. You have no intercessor in that time because your name's already been ticked off. So in that entire time, you are being considered, you know, have you sinned? Have you said the wrong thing? Have you done all these things? I believe that's why works are so important as part of the Seventh-day Adventist church, why people have to be part of this medical evangelistic outreach they say it's total member involvement. It isn't just the doctors. It isn't just dietitians. It isn't just nurses. It's every single person in that church has to be part of this medical evangelism and take it to a level where they can. So whether it's just talking to your neighbour about healthy cooking or vegetarianism or veganism, whether it's having you know, cooking classes, whether it's doing all these things, whether it's running this CHIP program, and if you look at the facilitator guide, it's got meat, eggs and dairy above alcohol and processed food as, the, as the, the toxins that provide the worst health outcomes. So every single person is immersed in this belief and immersed in telling this because when they tell this story, when enough people give up meat, as we've spoken about, or are aware of it and can make the conscious decision, again, the church founded Religious Liberty. They were the ones who started the Sentinel magazine in the 1800s. They were the ones that founded the, the International Religious Liberty Association. No, and part of that was to protect themselves from the Sunday blue laws that were being talked about as being brought in. But they also wanted to become non-combatants in the Civil War. There's a whole lot of reasons that they began this religious liberty. But it's carried on today and people probably don't realise it's the church they actually allow other church members or other people to be um, the president of the International Religious Liberty Association, but they're the CEO and they're most of the board members. Wow. You know, it's still very much protecting the Seventh-day Adventist church 
beliefs. That's what it's been set up to do. But they allow people to have choice. And so they are protecting other religions as well. And this idea that it's a moral choice that you decide you're going to give up all of these things because that means that you are spiritually pure. And flesh meat, Ellen G. White taught, flesh meat defiled people, not only men but women and children, and it defiled them spiritually, physically and morally. So, you know, this is a really, really powerful statement. And if you consider, I've mentioned that this their diet wasn't possible till different foods were invented. Well, John Harvey Kellogg invented these foods and his father had been part of the church from the beginning. He didn't send his children to school. John Harvey Kellogg didn't go to school because his father, they just kept teaching, it's about to be the end of the world. They're an apocalyptic church. Ellen G. White taught that it was going to happen in her lifetime. Jesus was going to come back. And the reason they blame that he hasn't come back is because not enough people have given up, mate. (laughs) This is why he's not coming back. So you you look at John Harvey Kellogg, he was only 12 years old when he went to work for the first family of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. He was 12 when he was typesetting her sermons, her testimonies to the church, and also this book, um, A Solemn Appeal to Mothers. In this book, she spoke only of mums, mothers deterring their children from masturbation, and she blamed meat as the major cause. Not the only cause, but the major cause. And so imagine being a 12-year-old. I don't know if you remember what it was like when you were 12. (laughs) Very impressionable. And and, and also um, quite worried about the world at 12. You know, you're just starting to become a little bit of an adult. You're losing some of your childhood beliefs. And coming out into the world and writing that meat will cause epilepsy, blindness, a decaying head, inwardly decaying head. And she had the words, and he had typeset, as if you put a pistol to your heart and took your own life. Crazy. Blame, blamed it on everything, um, becoming an imbecile, you know, just a whole lot of scary things, criminal behaviour. So here's a young boy. Is it any wonder when he grew up? And they paid for him to become a doctor. They paid for his medical education. That his life was spent creating foods to take the place of flesh, meat, milk, and butter and marketed as health food. This next clip is taken from episode 268, released on April 25th, 2022, titled The Case for Keto with best-selling author Gary Taubes. I love that your book is very scientific, but you also did show a few pictures of different plates that were isocaloric, so same calorie versions, but different foods. And you can you can just look at those foods and see like, okay, if I eat this, I'm going to be starving in two hours. If I eat this, you know, eggs, bacon, whatever you have on there, I'm not really going to be thinking about food at all. And those two things are exactly the same amount of calories. I think most people could understand that. Oh, I, I think so too. Although nobody commented, you're the first person to ever comment on that chapter, which I thought was very interesting. So all you do, all I did is I created plates of breakfast plates with a typical American breakfast, cereal, orange juice, toast, and a keto breakfast. And it's, you know, in effect, which are eggs, bacon, avocado, same calories. 
and did the same thing with the lunch. Although on lunch, I went to McDonald's just to make a point. I got, you know, McDonald's hamburger with a bun and small French fries and a soda. And the keto version was, you know, I think I took the hamburgers off the bun and no fries, no soda. And I, but it, it ended up the same amount of calories. I forget what the starch was. And dinner was, you know, uh, chicken with, mashed potatoes and broccoli for the American chicken, the, the, the typical standard American dinner. And the keto version was instead of a chicken breast, we had chicken thighs and, you know, bro more broccoli with butter or olive oil on. And you can match the calories exactly. And the meals don't look all that different. And in fact, the keto version of the lunch and dinner, most dietitians they don't like people eating animal products, but most dietitians would have said, this is fine. The only sticking point would have been breakfast because as soon as you get the eggs and bacon, they start thinking you're killing yourself. But the point is the carb that one of them is a weight loss diet. If nothing else, that three keto plates are a weight loss diet and the three standard American diet plates are not. I think the total calories between the three meals was around 2,500. Yeah, that sounds right. You know, and yet the conventional wisdom is one way or the other. It's always all about calories. And yet here you can, all you had to do was go through that exercise and you've got a, a weight loss diet and a weight maintenance diet of exactly the same calories. Yeah. Um, the idea of, we should talk about the addiction idea for a second and not being able to eat carbs. So again, the phrase I use in the book, um, which I borrowed from, what used to be and may still be the most famous book ever written about food it was called The Physiology of Taste. It was written by a French lawyer turned gourmand called uh, Jean-Antoine Briat Savarin. It was published in 1825, the year he died, and stayed in print, has been in print ever after, never went out of print. And Briat Savarin said, look, he said he struggled with his weight. And, and over the course of the 20 years he was collecting research for this book, he had interviews with like 500 overweight and obese people. And he said, they all, you know, they all tell you, ask them what their favorite food is. It's carbs. It's potatoes or bread or potatoes or bread or, you know, this was before sugar consumption. Uh, sugar was inexpensive, so he didn't talk that much about sugar because in the early 19th century, it was still kind of a luxury. Um, although he said, so his conclusion is that people get, it's the, he called it the farinaceous elements of the diet. Farinaceous meant starchy. So the carbohydrates in the diet that cause obesity, he said sugar makes everything worse. And the only solution is more or less rigid abstinence to those foods, not eating less, not exercising, more or less rigid abstinence to the carbohydrates in the diet. And some of us could get by with less abstinence. And some of us, basically, if we want to maintain a healthy way, we just can't eat these foods. You know, the same way if you're, I use the example of I had a cat, corn allergy if I was young. If I didn't want to have gastrointestinal problems, I couldn't eat corn. It was, And as I got older, if I don't want to be suffer from overweight or obesity, I can't eat carbs in general. I just can't do it. Um, and if I do, not only will I start gaining weight, but I'll start craving them. There's a, definitely a slippery slope to all this. So part of the problem of therapy. And this book, The Case of Keto, was originally called How to Think About How to Eat, because I just wanted to get people to understand if you struggle with your weight, this is 
the way I think you have to think about it. Um, you know, some of us just can't eat these foods. And the good thing is that when you stop eating them, there's a whole world of foods that you can eat that are delicious, which was the exact same point that Briat Savaram made in 1825. He was perfectly happy not eating bread or potatoes because he could live on all these other wonderful foods, particularly being French, where they had no compulsions against pouring butter sauces on everything. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I'd love that you went in there. I love the quote that you share. I don't think this is yours. You're quoting somebody when you say like, whether we, whether we think carbohydrates and sugar are addictive or not, we sure act like they do or so I'm paraphrasing. I'm sure I butchered that, but it, it, that's right. Like, is it addictive? I don't know. I sure act like it is. I can't stop. If I start, I can't stop. Yeah. And this is uh, my, my, before the case for keto, my last book was a case against sugar. <clears throat> and I had spent years doing research and I'm buried in the book writing it. And as I'm writing it, I have a very good friend named Charles Mann who uh, goes by Cam and uh, wrote two famous books, uh, 1491 and 1493, about the Americas before Columbus and then the Americas after Columbus. And it's called The Columbian Exchange. And, and Cam is a beautiful writer and an extraordinarily thoughtful man. And we had grown up together writing about science. And then we went our, he went into more history and I went into this new, crazy nutrition world. And so I'm writing a chapter about the first chapter of the diabetes book is just contemplating the possibility that this is an addictive substance. Because when you study how people act around sugar, when you study how sugar is uh, moves through populations and sugary foods, you could imagine it being a drug. And people who have written about it in the past um, have treated it as a drug similar to many of the other drugs that came out of the Americas around the same time with the um, colonization of the Americas. And I'm reading uh, Cam, Charles Mann, in his book, 1493, has a chapter on sugar. And in it, he says, you know, scientists debate today whether or not sugar is an addictive substance or we just act like it is. <laughs> and I think this is great, Cam. I've just written 4,000 words and you said what I'm trying to say in a sentence. This is how good this guy is. <laughs> and so I quoted his sentence in the book. I couldn't take the 4,000 words out. They're not bad. I still think they, they make a pretty good introduction. But uh, yeah, it's. I don't know if it is addictive the way we think of other It certainly works in the same part of the brain. But it is also a nutrient that works kind of uniquely in the liver. Um, sugar is a sucrose is a uh, what's called a dimer that's a chemical term it's the molecule of glucose bonded to a molecule of fructose and the glucose is what starches and grains are made out of and digested into and they raise blood it goes from your gut into your circulation and raises blood sugar the fructose goes to the portal vein to your liver and is mostly metabolized there the small intestine and so the other nutrient or calorie compound that's metabolized in the liver is alcohol. And it's interesting, you get similar effects, including fatty liver disease, possibly, and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which might be caused by sugar consumption. So um, it's got interesting, it, it does things that drugs of abuse, nicotine and, and, and 
you know, heroin and cocaine doesn't, even though it also works in the same part of the brain that they do. This next clip is from episode 303, released on July 11th, 2022, titled The Great Plant-Based Con with Jane Buxton. Jane Buxton wrote my favorite book of 2022, um, exactly the same title, The Great Plant-Based Con, Why Eating a Plants-Only Diet Won't Improve Your Health or Save the Planet. So let's talk about the difference between plant foods and animal foods as far as nutrients go. This is something you really yeah. cover quite a bit. And again, we yeah. all are presented with this idea that, that animal foods are inferior to plant foods as far as nutrients and vitamins and minerals. Everybody knows you need the broccoli, the kale, the spinach, whatever, to be able to yeah. get those nutrients. So what were some of the things you learned about the nutrient qualities between animal foods and plant foods? Well, they all, you know, plants and animal foods each have their benefits, as you just said. They So there are certain minerals, for instance, you can get better so you can get more of them more of those minerals from plants and certain ones where animal foods deliver the best the same thing with vitamins but if you look in the round if you're only eating plants you're going to be missing out on certain very key nutrients and you know i'm thinking preformed vitamin a i'm thinking b12 um uh d3 dha epa zinc iron a couple of others, you know, and there's even um, L-arginine, which I always have trouble saying, which helps to synthesize nitric oxide, which is very good for the heart. That's also a, a, a component of, of animal foods and, and not plant foods. So I think that there's an open and shut case for those missing nutrients. It's very hard to argue against that, although people try. And people say either, they, they either throw back um, that we don't really need those nutrients or, oh, we can get those from a pill. We can get those from a supplement. So, and I've had this experience the other day when I was at a book festival and I gave a presentation on, um, some of the nutrients that were missing in plants only diets and the vegan activist author who was debating me just simply said, well, my book lists all the ways that you can find those through supplements. And I think if you take a supplement and you can spare an animal's life, then that's the way to do it. So I think that what we need to think about is what is the purpose of food, right? Food is meant to do something for us. Um, it is meant to nourish us. It's meant to keep us alive and healthy. So I question the very basis and the principle of an approach that says, oh, don't worry about what you're getting from the food. Let's just take a supplement. I think that that's profoundly dangerous. Um, and somehow some dangerous technocratic view of the world, which I don't like to see. Yeah, I agree. And look, it's 2022. You can, if you have the resources, if you have the money, you can drive down the street to the supplement store and you can buy those supplements. And I, I would can. be on your side and argue that whether your body even absorbs those supplements is very questionable. Right. It's not the same as eating food sources. So we'll start there. But just the statement, if we, ju if we just say... B12. You will not get B12 by eating a plants-only diet. That's going to cause a lot of very serious issues. Yeah. That mm -hmm. one argument alone tells you that that diet is insufficient. <laughs> you have to supplement. That yeah. was not possible 40 years ago. You couldn't do that. No. And I am amazed how people sort of dance around that issue. When yeah. we talk about we don't, we don't need to eat B12, 
uh, sorry, we don't need to eat animal foods because we can get B12 somewhere else. People dance around that and they don't recognize the absolutely fundamental nature of that vitamin for health and that long-term deficiency can cause neurological diseases, spinal diseases, and uh, brain diseases, particularly in young children and babies. Um, so, you know, that that to me is, is kind of a mystery that people keep wanting to dance around that and avoid confronting that fact. And in fact, I was, you might've read this bit in the book that there was a piece uh, written by somebody from the vegan society that actually warned vegans against trying to get their B12 from certain forms of algae. Did you do you remember that? Yeah. Because those forms are B12 analogs, which mimic B12, and they make the deficiency even worse. That's right. So there's, there's some acknowledgement of that, and yet, and yet, you know, we have people denying that it's important. That's right. Yeah. No, it blows my mind. The, the vitamin A thing is really interesting because you mentioned preformed yeah. vitamin A. A yeah. lot of a lot of arguments I hear from plant based is like, well, we don't need that from animal foods because we can get beta carotene from things like carrots, yeah. and they don't understand yeah. that just because there's something in the food doesn't mean you're going to be able to convert it very well. And that's an example of a nutrient that really isn't converted very well inside the human body. That's right. And there are, there's, I think it's something like 40 to 50% of people cannot convert it. Right. And so again, when I brought this up in my talk with this other author, he just said, well, that's not true. So boom, you know, get rid of that problem. <laughs> okay. Like that, that's the thing that's so frustrating is you'll just say like, oh, that's garbage. Oh, it's not true. Like yeah. explain, that's explain, right. tell me why. And they never have an answer. I'll just come back yeah. and say something rude. <laughs> The, the most honesty, and I do respect this level of honesty in people, is when they say, I know all that. I know that the diet, the, the plants-only diet is deficient in X, Y, and Z, but I'm willing to make that sacrifice for the animals, and that's what I do. Fair enough. Fair. You can't argue with that. Fair. Yep. Fair. Yep. Yeah. Totally right. And and it, it is like, if that's your choice and you want to do it and you know the facts, that's fine. But it, being ignorant to the facts is a whole different thing. Yeah, yeah totally. You um, know, I, the, the iron thing is also, it, it amazes me that, you know, there are something like 2 billion people in the world who are iron, defi- who are hep- anemic. And that is largely an iron deficiency disease. It's not entirely, but it largely is. And um, it amazes me that with that statistic, which is acknowledged by the WHO, um, we are recommending in any way the removal of meat and animal foods from the diet because those are the foods that could cure that problem. Yeah, that's so, right. It's, it doesn't make any sense. It's really unwise, I think. Absolutely. All these years, I've been consuming canned spinach, just like Popeye. I thought it was going to give me big yeah. muscles. What a waste. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. (laughs) It's also interesting when we look at the protein consumption. So people argue like, Oh, this is, this is a weird one, but people argue like, okay, I can get enough protein from plant foods. Plant foods do contain protein. They might not have the exact right amino acid profile. So you mentioned in the book, several combinations of foods that you would have to combine. You almost have to be like a chemist or something when you're putting these meals together to be able to, to get the right amount of amino acids. Yeah, that's exactly right. So not only is that difficult, but I think it's just impractical to expect that everybody's going to do that. People don't even know they have to do that, many people. But even if they do, 
life just isn't like that where you could, you know, weigh everything out and do your mathematical formulas and, and all of that. And even when you do that, you still have to eat mountains of the stuff. Yeah. Right. Okay. So I've got so, that marked right yeah. here. I love this. Yes. So say you set out to get all your essential amino acid from single plant source, such, such as chickpeas. Okay. You could do so by getting 700 grams of boiled chickpeas in a single meal for us in the States. That's three cups, three yeah. cups. Yeah. You'd be bloated out to here. You? <laughs> totally. Yeah. It's, it's, it, first of all, like just common sense. It's not even really like doable or practical. And then you make this point, which I love. It comes with a price tag of 1,200 calories and over 140 grams of carbohydrate. So it's not just yeah. that you're getting the protein. You're getting all kinds of other stuff that you probably didn't want to have to begin with. That's right. So the protein leverage hypothesis, which you'll be familiar with, is that people eat until they get the right amount of protein. And if you're therefore getting the protein from a plant source that has a lot of carbohydrate, you're going to keep eating it, if you can possibly stomach it, um, to, to the point where you're getting excess carbohydrate and calorie intake. And so I think you'll get one of two situations uh, with people who want to get all their protein from those kinds of foods. You'll get uh, excess carbohydrate consumption with all the risks that that contains for obesity, diabetes, and, and metabolic ill health, or you won't get that, but you'll get protein deficiency. Yeah. So I think, and you know, protein is something we take for granted now. I think in Western societies where we think we have access to lots of it, we take for granted just how important it is yeah. and, and how much we can get. I remember, you know, last year, my mother, who's 89, had an operation and uh, the doctor sent, pulled me aside as we took her home and said, if you don't get enough protein into her, she will not recover. And that, to me, just captured that whole uh, criticality of protein for recovery, for building muscle, for sustaining muscle, for sustaining organ function. It's, it's not... It's not a, a nutrient to take lightly. That's right. It really is not. Yeah, especially as we age, we need that muscle mass. People might hear yeah. building muscle and think, okay, I, you know, I'm 70 years old. Building muscle is not what I want to do. I don't want to look like a bodybuilder. But we're talking about protecting yourself from the fall that everybody takes yeah. and basically is game over. You mentioned protein leverage, and you mentioned Ted Naiman yeah. in the book, who's also been in our, our podcast to be able to talk yeah. about this. And I always think back to the last time I had a bag of uh, tortilla chips and salsa, Yeah, and I ate a chip. Chip, and I ate a chip and I ate a chip and I ate a chip. And before, before, like in a shockingly short amount of time, my hand is hitting the bottom of the bag and I'm still hungry. And most people can you appreciate can that. And, yeah, totally. All of us can get involved. can at least understand that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's what happens. Ted Naiman, by the way, knows more about protein than probably, you know, absolutely. most people in the world. He, absolutely. Yeah. And he grew so up. I can't claim to know that much, but I, I know enough to know it's damned important. It's damned important. Absolutely. And we'll talk yeah. about this a little bit later on, but he grew up in the Seventh-day Adventist church. <laughs> right. Yep. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, that, Very interesting. Yeah. In your book, you set this up so brilliantly. I love it. Where you have one chapter that says, these are the things that you're not going to get enough of. Now, in yes. this chapter, we're going to show you the flip side. These are the things that you're going to get too much of. What are some surprising things you learned about people eating a plant-based diet getting too much of certain things? Well, the first one I covered is, is what really surprised me um, was the oxalates. Um, because um, I literally, before I started doing this research, I had no idea about those. 
Um, and then I, I uh, did the research and I spoke to Sally Norton, who, by the way, have you had her on your yeah, show? Yeah, absolutely. And we talked to her tomorrow again yeah. for the second time. Oh, good. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. And she's got a book coming out soon, yep. November or something. Yep. And uh, she knows so much about this. And so I think it makes perfect sense that oxalates in small quantities, which is how we're meant to consume them in seasonally chosen foods, right? they don't do you any harm or they don't do most people any harm. Then you, if you recommend that everybody eats only plant foods, you're going to, by definition, be overloading many people with those uh, oxalates. So I think it's an absolute certainty that if everybody were to go down that route, we would see an oxalate overload problem in the population. Yeah, absolutely. Not to mention things like phytates and lectins. The phytate thing is super right. interesting. And you cite the study, which I, I still find absolutely mind-blowing. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the famous study with the oysters? Yeah, so there's a, a famous, it's quite old now, but um, very, very valuable and relevant, which shows how much zinc you can absorb in the body um, by eating oysters if you eat it with certain other foods. And so if you eat it with, and I forget the exact detail, you probably have it right there, but if you're eating it with uh, a corn tortilla, the oysters, you will absorb virtually none of the zinc, right? And then there's another food, which is also a plant-based high phytic acid food. Is it black beans, I um, think? Black beans, you absorb something like 50% of the zinc. Now, this is, that's a, a funny little study that, that is very instructive, but the WHO recognizes this because they have set the um, RDAs for zinc at twice as high for those countries where the diets are full of phytic acid and not very full of animal proteins. Wow. So they know that it's happening. They know. This next clip is from episode 261, released on April 11th, 2022, titled The Plant-Free MD, Dr. Anthony Chafee, who we also interviewed in episode 332, so be sure to check both of those out. We talked to a lot of people about the, the advantages of eating lots of meat. We've even talked to people like Sally Norton, who talks about the harms of oxalates and, you know, that can be found in a lot of plant foods. But I'm, I'm really excited to chat with you as a plant-free MD to talk really truly about the harms of eating plants and have like a really comprehensive, um, you know, kind of a guide as to why plants, you know, are so prevalent in our diets and why maybe they should or shouldn't be. But I would just like to talk about yeah. your story and how you first came across this. You came across this quite a while ago, understanding yeah. that the plants really are not that great for us. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's my, my approach to this as well. And that's why, you know, I call my podcast, the plant free MD, because it's not, it's not just about eating meat, you know, that that's obviously a big part of it. But the main thing is not eating all these other things that actually cause harm. So, you know, I talked to, when I was first talking to, to people about this, you know, they, they would say, oh yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. You know, that makes sense. But, you know, I don't mind eating salad. So, you know, I'll just keep eating salad. And the point is, it's not that you don't, you don't have to eat salads. You don't have to eat vegetables to get all your nutrition from, you know, because you can get all your nutrition from meat, which is true. But in fact, you don't want to eat the salad. The salad is actually bad for you. So it's not just like, oh, hey, you don't, you don't have to do it if you don't want to. It's like you shouldn't do it. 
Um, the reason being, yeah, exactly. The reason being is that, you know, plants are living organisms and they, they want to stay living organisms. All living things have a defense down to single celled organisms. And while animals can run away or fight back, plants can't. And so they have to use different means to, dis- to defend themselves against predation. They have all sorts of different different ways of doing that, which are very, very interesting. But one of the main ones is that they just use poisons. They are just toxic to animals and insects. You know, caffeine was developed as, as an insecticide and it's actually, you know, a, you know, a neurotoxin and can cause seizures in people that are prone to epilepsy. So, you know, the, these things actually do cause harm to us and they're supposed to, you know, you know, plants don't want to be uh, eaten by and large. Obviously, there, there are exceptions in symbiotic relationships uh, with certain animal species, but that's how these things have developed. And so some people say, well, you know, like, oh, this plant doesn't want to be eaten, so it uses poison. It's like, oh, but that cow doesn't want to be eaten either. Oh, shush, that doesn't, that doesn't meet with a narrative. I saw some uh, guy say that specifically. Well, the point is, is that the cow can defend itself as well. It just has different defenses because it's mobile, because it can use kinetic you know, kinetic, uh, defenses, it doesn't need to be poisonous. It's flesh doesn't have to be poisonous to the lion that eats it where, you know, a eucalyptus leaf does, you know? So I, I mean, I learned in seventh, seventh or eighth grade biology that plants and animals are an evolutionary arms race plants becoming more and more poisonous. So less and less animals can eat them so that they can survive and thrive or else they go extinct which most species of life have gone extinct at this point. So everything that's come through the gauntlet of evolution is battle hardened, including the plants. And then animals, you know, also evolving to, uh, to uh, and adapting to being able to break down specific poisons safely so that they can eat a specific plant. And then most thing, other things can't eat that. So that that's their conserved resource. They don't have to compete for resources as much like, you know, pandas, koalas, you know, giraffes and, and, uh, and everything else, you know, these things eat plants, but they eat very specific plants because they can eat that plant. It's safe to eat that plant. They eat other, other plants, they'll die. People know this, this is common knowledge. Almost every plant on earth is quote unquote inedible, meaning that it will kill you if you eat a small amount of it. Well, then we have edible plants. The only distinction there is that they don't kill you very quickly, but that doesn't mean that they don't use poisons. That doesn't mean that they don't use toxins. They do. It's just that we have some inbuilt, inbuilt defenses to these things, but we don't have immunities. It's not like cows and grass, you know, where a cow can eat and there's different kinds of grasses and and some cows can't, and cows can't eat certain kinds of grasses. So when you're eating your, your evolved plant, then you can do that. But if your species hasn't evolved to eat a specific plant, that plant is bad for you. So, you know, we learn this, we actually teach this to kids and anybody, and people say, oh, why don't we know this? Or, or maybe they call bullshit on it. You ask anybody who studied botany, even taking one class on it, they'll be like, oh yeah, actually that's true. Study horticulture, one class on horticulture. Oh yeah, no, that's actually true. You know, all plants, you know, use some form of toxin. That is a rule across the plant and fungus kingdoms. Just period. That That is hard fact. That is hard science. Like it's that that's really not up for debate. That That is a thing that exists in nature. And just because someone doesn't know that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It just means they need to read more. And I encourage everyone to do that. Just go to an introductory botany book. It is there. Okay. Study, you know, take a book on horticulture. It's there. So when I was in, in college at the University of Washington, I was taking cancer biology. I always knew I wanted to be a doctor and I was always interested in those sorts of classes. 
So I was taking cancer biology and we were sort of going back over this. The fact that plants use poisons, you know, to stop predation, to deter predation. And this is a cancer biology class. So, so we were looking at it in, uh, from a cancer perspective. And so we were looking at the different amount of carcinogens that were in, you know, uh, plants that we would, we would eat on it on a regular basis. And we learned that like Brussels sprouts, like the most reviled vegetable of all from all kids, there's a good reason for that. They had, at the time, we had already discover, discovered 136 separate human carcinogens just in Brussels sprouts. And mushrooms had over 100. Spinach, kale, lettuce, celery, cabbage, cucumber, broccoli, you name it, everything. Had, we were getting lists, literally page after page of all the different plants that you've ever eaten. And every single one, there wasn't a single one that had less than 60 carcinogens in it. And so you know, this is where that bitter taste comes from. This is why kids hate the taste of vegetables you know, when they first, when they're first eating solids, because they're, they're much more closely attuned to their genetics. And so that bad taste, that's a very good indication that there's something bad there for you. A bitter taste of a bad taste. That is your, your brain and tongue are sophisticated machines. And that is their way of telling you there is something bad in there for you, bad in there. So if something is bitter, it is bad for you, right? This is why medicine's bitter. Well, what is medicine? Medicine is a poison that just causes more benefit than harm in certain circumstances. But just like you're not going to take antibiotics every single day, you shouldn't eat, you know, you know, uh, broccoli or, or, or celery or whatever every single day. Maybe there's some medicinal purposes for that, but maybe not. But whether or not they do, those medicinal purposes are only of, uh, of a net benefit when you're sick and when you're unwell and that's treating you for something. So we were quite blown away by this. Obviously, as, as I think everyone I tell that to is just like, that can't be real. I thought the same thing. I'm like, what the hell is going on here? We th I thought it must be joking. He must just be screwing with us. Everyone was literally looking around wildly, like, what's going on? Like, who's, who, who's in on the joke? I was looking for like a TA somewhere in the back of the class that's just sitting there like smirking, like, ah, he does this all the time. There was no one. And it slowly sort of dawned on us that like, Jesus, this, guy, this, guy's, this guy's serious. And you know, and uh, and I remember like just thinking in my head, I was like, you know, but but vegetables are still good for you, though, right? And he just looked at us and he's just like, I don't eat salad. I don't eat vegetables. I don't let my kids eat vegetables. Plants are trying to kill you. So I was like, right, screw plants, and I just I just stopped eating them uh, right away. And I and you know I went to the store. And I just everything was a plant. Everything had plant product. Everything had some sort of product in it that came from plants, be it, you know, grains or seeds or vegetables or fruit, sugar, obviously everything came from a plant. And so I just ended up just getting eggs, meat, and milk because those were the only things I could find that didn't have plants. And so I ended up inadvertently becoming a carnivore, uh, for several years, at least five. And I was playing, you know, uh, professional rugby at the time I was, I was, you know, traveling all over the U S and Canada and, and then internationally. And I was, I was just, most of that time was I was a pure carnivore and I just never felt better and I've never performed better and I've never played better. And I've never, I've never had such, you know, exercise tolerance and it was, I've never been able to push myself so hard. I've never recovered so fast except until now when I'm, when I'm doing it again and my body does the same thing. I'm 20 years older and I feel just as good, you know, and uh, you know, I don't have the time anymore to dedicate uh, like I did before I was training, you know, sometimes anywhere from six to even 10 hours a day, every day. And so I was getting in absolutely insane shape, 
I don't have the time for that anymore. But when I do, I can, I can push myself much further than I could before. And I recover nearly instantly and I get much more benefit out of that. Uh, so that was my introduction to it. And then when I was in England playing, I just didn't have the same access uh, to food. I don't know why, but the steaks, I, I couldn't get them to brown in, in England. I just couldn't do it. I don't know if they like, if they had a higher water content or something, but like they only went gray on the outside. And then I, I was, I just kept cooking them until they browned, but they never browned. And so I ended up cooking these things well done. And I just, ugh, you know, wasn't having fun with it. And then, so I, I just couldn't figure out how the hell to cook a damn steak there. I don't you know. Was, I'm sure it was me, but like there was something going wrong. And, um, and so I ended up getting meat that was already cooked and, and that seemed to be easier just because I was, you know, I was playing all the time and training all the time. I just didn't have time to mess around. And, you know, some of the times that, that meat would be breaded, like breaded chicken drumsticks. And I, I remember thinking to myself like, Oh, that's a plant, but is it that much? Does it make that much of a difference? I'm like, well, you know, let's just see. It did. It made a big difference. I remember a couple of months into it, you know, I was, I was getting aches and pains and little, you know, niggling sores and, and, uh, and just, just little weird injuries. And I was just like, I was like, Oh, I don't, you know, what the hell's going on. And, and I, I just wasn't, I didn't have the same energy that I had. I didn't have that same, just like gusto for, uh, you know, ex, you know, exercise that I, that I had before. And I remember thinking, I was like, you know, what's, what's the difference? Like what's going on? Am I just not pushing myself? Am I, am I not training as hard? Like what, what am I doing? Or you know, I was 25 at the time. So I was like, is that it? Is this 25? That's the crest. And then you're just going downhill after that, you know, which is certainly what I thought when I was 21, 22, you know, my friends would be like, Oh yeah, I'm 25. So I'm still young. So doing this. I'm like, dude, you're dying. Like, what are you talking about? And then, so I'm 25. I'm like, shit, am I dying? It's like, <laughs> is that it? Um, but you know, looking back, it was, that was when I, I unknowingly switched off, off of a carnivore diet and started eating these plants again. Several years ago, I came across, uh, you know, more solid information that oh, humans actually are carnivores is that that's the kind of animal that we are. And we were taught this, we're taught that we're apex predators, top of the food chain. You know, what, what animal do you know of at the top of the food chain that eats anything except animals below it on the food chain? Can't think of a single thing. Sharks and dolphins don't eat kelp, you know, for roughage, you know, lions don't you know enjoy a fresh garden salad every now and then, you know, they just don't. And so, you know, we're, we're the same. And so when we're, when we step off of that, when we stop eating our, our naturally evolved, biologically appropriate species specific diet, which is meat, that's when we run into troubles. And so all of a sudden everything just, just, I had this epiphany. All of a sudden I started looking at medicine uh, from that perspective that humans are animals, humans are animals and the kind of animal that we are, are a carnivore. And we are a carnivore that are not eating and living as carnivores. And this is where you start seeing this breakdown in health. And it's a, it's a, it's a sort of a, poison exposure relationship. When we get exposed to these, these poisons in these plants, especially in, in abundance, we end up developing different diseases like heart disease, diabetes, uh, you know, uh, autoimmune disorders, and even Alzheimer's and, and uh, autoimmune, uh, or, or, sorry, like autism, like neurodevelopmental delays as well. And, and, and these have all been linked to diet and some have, have causative links as well, such as autism. So, you know, this is, this is a very, very important part of, of medicine. I think it's really the most important part because it's something so easy that you can just, you can just eliminate this huge swaths of so-called disease because they're not diseases. They're, they're, they're poisonings. We're being poisoned and we're not getting enough 
uh, of our appropriate nutrition. And that's, uh, that's sort of my approach to all this is, is getting people the right, you know, species specific food, which is fatty meat. And the fat is very important. It's one of the most important parts that people are still afraid of, though they shouldn't be. It does not cause heart disease. It does not cause diabetes. It does not cause obesity. It just doesn't. And so getting people back on that and then specifically eliminating the different things that are harmful to them. This next clip is taken from episode 223, released on January 24th, 2022, titled Eat Like a Human with returning guest, Dr. Bill Schindler. We, I've been searching my whole life to answer this question, what I should be eating. And I think that's where most of us looking to get healthy, put all of our effort. You know, what is it? What kind of grains am I eating? What kind of milk am I drinking? What kind of meat am I getting? Where am I sourcing it from? And all those things are incredibly important. And I don't want to under understate that. But what I do want to say is for humans, that's only half the equation. Um, we are we have one of the least efficient digestive tracts of any animal on the planet. And it's a it's a huge conversation. I, I dive into it in depth in the book. But the reality is we are not physically designed to eat most of the foods that we consume today and even in the past we uh and, and it's really odd to say that wow what do, what do you mean we need all these foods we've been eating them for hundreds of years or thousands of years or tens of thousands of years aren't humans omnivores well yes humans are omnivores but not by design not because we were designed to consume all these foods that we eat right we don't have a digestive tract like a cow that is specifically set up to properly digest efficiently and safely tough vegetable materials. We don't have a digestive tract like a goose or a duck or another granivorous bird that's specifically designed to safely and efficiently uh, get the nutrition from things like grains. We don't have any of those things. So, but but we are omnivores. How can that be? And the re we're omnivores by technology because over millions of years, our ancestors created uh, technologies and behaviors and approaches to food to transform it before it touches our lips, to literally get it ready for our incredibly weak and inefficient digestive tract to safely and efficiently make use of that food. That's the key. That's what humans do differently than all other animals, that we process the food when we do it right properly before it touches our lips. So, and most of the technologies created over really, and, and, I, and, I, and I'm not overstating this at all, almost three and a half million years, beginning with the first stone tool, these technologies were designed to take a resource that in many cases we have no business consuming, make it safe, make it nutrient dense, and most importantly, make it bioavailable. In other words, make those nutrients available to our digestive tract. So when we consume that food, we're getting the nutrition going to the places it needs to go in our bodies. That's the key. And that's the how part. So that we've been asking this question, what, which is important, which is the same question you just asked me, like, what, you know, what about the apple? What apples? That's important. And we'll talk about that in a second. But what's really also important to, to, to comprehend is that when we do it right, we use technologies to transform those resources into their safest and most nourishing forms possible before we consume them and get them ready for our bodies. That's the, the cooking piece of it, whether it's it's cooking or fermenting or slicing or dicing or nishtamalizing or, or, or co-eating with different things. That's, that's the thing that we need to bring back into our kitchen. 
because I said in the past five minutes, the word processing probably a dozen times. And most of us, when we think about food processing, like, oh my gosh, that's terrible. And it is the way the modern food industry processes food today. Most of it is terrible. Most of it is at the expense of safety and nutrient density and nutrient bioavailability. And at, at its ultimate end, end result is it's at the expense of our own health. But what it's doing is making other people a whole lot of money, right? But the, the food processing we need to get back is to make the food safe and nourishing as possible. So that's the foundation of it. And, and, and the cool thing is all of this is doable in your home kitchen. It doesn't matter if you live in a tiny little flat in New York City or a mansion on top of a mountain in Montana with the, you know, the most well-outfitted kitchen on the planet. You have all, almost or you have all the things you need to, to process that food properly now. Our ancestors are doing it in caves with sticks and rocks and fire and clay pots. We certainly have the things that we need to have um, already. So as far that, that how piece is incredibly important. The what piece also is important, and there is a little bit of overlap. So you mentioned the apples, 365 days a year. Well, we think of that as as a you know, the ability to take produce and make it available all year round as this as this wonderful thing and a you know this result of modern technology and transportation and shipping and refrigeration and freezing and all that. And the reality is, we have never, ever in the history of our species had access to the same vegetable or fruit all year round. It's impossible. And when we come from the mindset that the most nourishing things we can be eating is fruits and vegetables, and it, which is not true, but if, if that was true, um, you know, it just follows, the thinking follows is, wow, if some of this is good, more of it's better. So if I can get it two weeks out of the year naturally, then let me, if I can get it 365 days a year, because I can get it shipped in from Argentina and Peru and wherever else, and I can have it frozen, then that's even better. But when you dive into it and look more deeply and, and you understand that, no, we've actually been eating seasonally for millions of years, in fact, hyper-seasonally and hyper-local for, for a very long period of time, then and we start to realize that while plants have nutrition that is valuable, plants are inherently dangerous, right? And we can talk about this in just a few minutes, but what I, I mention it now to say one of the issues that we've caused by making fruits and vegetables the same ones available all year round is we have created a danger in our food system that we're just starting to now realize. We're, we're, we're taking plants, and I'll bring up spinach as an example, plants that have certain toxins in them. In the case of spinach, it's incredibly high in oxalates, that if you ate spinach for the two weeks out of the year that you know, it would grow in your area out in, in, a, in a field, then no big deal. But if you take that and eat it literally every single day or, or every single week, all year round, you're starting to create uh, the, the toxicity level is going to build up in your bodies and it's going to cause all sorts of issues. And we're starting to actually realize that today. Spinach. <laughs> you're talking about what everybody would ubiquitously consider a healthy food. And we were fortunate yeah. enough to have Sally Norton on, and she's obviously an expert in oxalate. And it's absolutely bananas. And people don't consider that seasonality. I've heard you talk about this before, and you've said that plants should scare the hell out of you. What do you mean by that? <laughs> That's the opening line of my chapter on plants in the book. <laughs> um, listen, first of all, I just got to say, Sally Norton is fantastic. And I, and I, I will give her uh, I, I will always give her an amazing amount of credit. She one conversation with her about oxalates a couple of years ago literally changed my life. 
she is with the work she's doing is literally that powerful. Um, and I, thankfully she's coming out with a book and it should be available in just a couple months. Um, and I, and it's going to be, it, it's going to, it's going to change lives. So here, here's the story with plants. First off, we have taken away seasonality in our grocery stores and the more removed we are from our food system and the longer our food chain is right. Um, and the more, the more distance we are from our food, the less we have direct access to the knowledge about our food, where it comes from, how it should be prepared what nourishing forms of it actually are. And the more we start to rely on other people who some of them certainly have our best interest or our interest at heart, but most of them are trying to make money and the power giving up the power of food and nourishment to somebody else is incredibly dangerous. And you know, there's direct marketing campaigns and people in lab coats playing with flavor profiles of food that are there to trick us and, and make us buy more food and overeat and do all these other sorts of things. And we know this, but one thing that's also um, a little bit less in your face, but probably even more powerful is literally what is in the grocery stores. What we see in the grocery stores subli is our, our subliminal messages to tell us what food is and what food isn't. Right. It, you know, if we were hunter gatherers and we're out there foraging and hunting every day and we see the seasons change and we see the animals migrate in and we see this is available then and this plant is you know, not available at this point. It's just, you know, we we would naturally recognize this is food. This isn't food. This is food this time of year. This isn't food that time of year. because I can't get it at all. But when we go into the grocery store and we see asparagus all year round. And we see apples all year round and every one of them looks exactly the same. And the eggs are exactly the same size. And then we see chicken breast here. And, and you know, there's a ton of chicken breast over here. There's a few thighs. And maybe, maybe there's a container stuck in the back that has some livers in it. But probably if you see livers in your grocery store, most of the time it's in the bait section for the food. You know, it, it really, that, that experience right there shapes how you envision you know, your foodscape, what you have access to, what food is and what food isn't right then and there. You know, you don't see any chicken skin. You don't see any chicken hearts. You don't see any chicken gizzards. You don't see any bones. You don't see any feet. You don't see, you know, uh, misshapen apples. You don't, you, you do see asparagus all year round. You don't see an empty slot where the asparagus is when it's not in season. All of that are, you know, powerful subliminal messages that shape the way you view your food and what a healthy diet should and shouldn't be. This next clip is from episode 308, released on July 22nd, 2022, titled Carnivore Clarity with returning guest, Laura Spath. Quality of meat. Do you have to have grass-fed, grass-finished, organic, pastured, whatever, everything? Does everything have to be the highest quality? Never. And honestly, I think that the grass finished meat, like most of the time, I can't really even stomach it. The taste is grassy. It's just not my favorite. Agreed. I have Agreed. turned down any company who wants to send me meat. That's like all grass finished. I usually say no, or I say you can send it, but I'm not promising you that I like, I can't post about it if it tastes this way. Um, and so those things are very specific for me. I've never eaten organs. And I think like I, we've done some very full episodes on this, but like I have 
cousins who raise cattle and they live in a very remote part of West Virginia. They can't sell their beef to local people in their area because there aren't local people in their area. And they all raise cows. Like they live in this very remote part. I live in Phoenix. There's not enough local farmers to feed all of Phoenix. When I'm shopping at Costco and when I'm shopping at the regular grocery store, I am supporting local farmers throughout the U.S., they're just not local to me. I am still getting really good quality meat. I think this vegan message of the factory farms and all of this craziness actually seeps over into our world where we are still being propagandized by some of that messaging. The fact that like cows are eating Skittles and pumped full of hormones for no reason, like none of this is true. And the meat that you can get from a regular grocery store is absolute quality. I buy pork from the regular grocery store and I get a lot of criticism for that because of PUFAs and some of the purists in the community who talk about how regular chicken and regular pork are what is making us fat. No, no. Pizza and Twinkies made me fat. Pints of ice cream every day made me fat. Eating regular pork and chicken from the grocery store is not my issue. And I think that's another one of those things where the cost gets too out of control and astronomical for people. The flavor is terrible. And the accessibility isn't there that people put so much pressure on themselves. I would be somebody who would just go back to eating spaghetti because that seems like a way more realistic option when now I'm doing amazing. And I think sometimes the message of eat what you can afford, eat what you like and eat what you can afford, I appreciate. But I also think that that message is giving the concession that it's not as good quality. And that's where I disagree. The meat from the regular grocery store is amazing quality. I Walmart Angus beef steaks are some of the best steaks that you can get. And I love them. And the quality is great. And the fat content and all of those things are amazing. And the flavor is great that I think, um, it's not about because I can afford it. It's also because it's amazing quality. And I think that we need to feel confident in that decision as well. That's such a great point. I love the way you talked about thinking about local, not necessarily, I got this next door, but local, it's, it's our country. It's, you know, from yes. the United States, it's maybe not, you know, every, you know, cow producers producing meat all the time. And so that has to change and prices vary and things yeah. like that. But I agree places like Costco and the local store has great quality meat, like some of the best I've ever had. And I, I, I love the idea of shopping local at a ranch and I'm the same way for me. Like I, I can't stomach it. I cooked it every way that I know how yeah. marinated and smoked and, you know, in, in roasts and everything, I can't get it to taste good to the point that I would eat it. But anything I get at the store, I can get tri-tip for a few bucks a pound and it tastes amazing and great. I'm going to do that. That's a really good And point. I think, unfortunately, people give up. They message me desperate, like, I can't stomach, how do you make grass-finished meat taste good? I'm like, don't eat it. Or how do you afford eating all this organic? Don't eat it. Eat some regular eggs and eat some beef. And like, trust me, it tastes way better. Totally. Um, you know, the... I think there's, you know, the myths have been busted about the yellow egg yolks. It's like you feed some chickens a bunch of marigold and all of a sudden these deep color egg yolks are, are there. Like the nutritional differences are so minor that it's, you can make up that difference, like eat some fish and you're going to fix your omega-3, omega-6 situation. And you're, you know, you don't have to worry about like eating regular pork and that type of thing. Yeah. Don't get too worked up about some of those minor details when in right. the reality of the situation is if you're eating this way, you're probably going to be just fine. Your body can probably regulate just fine. Yeah. You mentioned something. This is a huge, um, it seems like it's even like controversial at this point in the community and its organs. 
what is your feeling about organ meats? I know you said you don't eat them uh, and, and maybe, you know, I know this is Judy's you know baby yep. basically, but maybe we can comment on, on behalf of her of the things that she's learned about organ meats over time. Yeah. So, I mean, I didn't eat them at first because that sounds terrible. Like that sounds awful. <laughs> like I don't want anything to do with that. Uh, and that's honestly, I just didn't eat them for that reason. And I wasn't experiencing any health gaps. And so I didn't do that. And then, you know, through learning from Judy about the vitamin A toxicity and the overconsumption. I think we go through these cycles in the community where everybody was eating tons and tons of liver. And again, if your body is somebody who is metabolically healthy and you can tolerate a little bit of liver, then, and you think that's good, great. But like, I know too many people that are choking it down. Um, and you know, because they think it's this healthy superfood, I think from a, in my mind, right? Judy's the one who does the science stuff, but let's think about it realistically. If you're killing this giant animal and you're killing a mammoth or you're killing um, uh, any kind of zebra, there's one liver versus how many hundreds of pounds of meat. And I think that like, it doesn't make sense from, if you want to talk about ancestrally, it doesn't make sense from that perspective that you would need like ounces and ounces of liver every day, because that wouldn't have been accessible, um, to, to people. And they're eating the majority of muscle meats. Um, I think that's part of it. I think, you know, you can really dig into a lot of Judy's content on vitamin A toxicity. If you see the people in the community who were eating tons and tons of liver and still eat lots of liver, you've noticed that they now incorporate a lot of fruit. And I think that's because they likely started feeling better incorporating all this fruit because they were getting too much vitamin A from all of the liver and a lot of the organs that they were eating in the first place. So I think that's something that I've observed from a, from an outside perspective, but I had no intention of eating it in the first place. And then once Judy said, you know, or like I learned more and sh she presented the research and the science behind it. Um, I was like feeling a little more vindicated about not having <laughs> it in the first place, but, uh, it's definitely not something that was ever interesting to me. And I'm never going to just force myself to eat something that I don't like um, in order to stay healthy. I wish I had that mindset. I wish health was my number one goal overall. I wish I could say food is fuel and it doesn't, I just eat it to be healthy, but I'm not that person and I will never be that person. This next clip is from episode 362 released on October 31st, 2022 titled visceral fat carnivore diets and sprinting with Dr. Sean O'Mara. Think about all the people that are older than you in your life. Or if you're already older, think about yourself and your, your, your colleagues or whatever, family members. And here's what happened. As they start going to doctors, their bag of pills start growing more and more medications. And oh, by the way, they start performing less. They start aching more and they start accumulating more chronic disease. Well, let me ask you, why in the world do we tolerate we consumers tolerate a segment of service to consumers that just is horrible. You just go and you get worse. And we would keep taking our car to the automobile, you know, garage maintenance service if they just kept destroying the car, making it worse and making more money. No, but or the same thing with any other consumer based service or product. If it was just Every time you went, you slowly got worse and worse. We wouldn't put up with it. But the medical industry has foisted upon us, and I think they're exploiting in part, the preference 
I call it like almost a lazy gene of people wanting shortcuts and they'll take a shortcut rather than uh, walk in a long way that's better to take a pill because they're blinded to all those side effects and problems and the accumulation of chronic disease. But your goal should be every year of my life, I get better. So I will posit to you and your audience that literally, as you get older and more gray hair, you become better performing. You become better living. And I know it's a radical concept, but people tend to believe that they're at their best in their 20s. Wrong answer. For 4 million years, the highest performers were gray-haired men and women because they did not have chronic disease and they had accumulated knowledge and skill sets to perform exceptionally well. We see a tiny glimmer of this in high performers like Tom Brady. Now, he may not have the gray hair that I have, but he has dedicated himself to becoming more healthy you know, you could argue some of the things he, he with some of the things he does and doesn't do, but he is high performing and he's older. So if you're listening today, the future, I believe, is an awareness of the biomarkers and biometrics that are available to us that we can follow to eradicate chronic disease and the accumulated knowledge of life experience, how to live better so that we perform better, live better. And that should be what is attractive uh, to people. But today, we value youth. Um, the youth don't know because they're too young. And if you're uh, a 40, 50-year-old year soccer mom that's overweight, you're going to some 20-something personal trainer or health coach, you're not going to get better because their ideas about being better are based on a 20-year-old's experience. you got to follow very, very fit very, very high-performing older people with gray hair whose appearance and performance validate that they know how to live well. So I define health based on two metrics. Health equals mathematically an expression of how you appear and how you perform. And that is the base of the level of health that you have. Your capacity for imparting that knowledge is really predicated on experience. So as you get older, you'll become more effective. So the most effective influencers of the future will be gray-haired, very attractive, very high-performing older men and women, as it was for 4 million years until processed foods came along when we started planting grains and consuming them. And so now older people look terrible. And why do the young people not follow the older people? because they look terrible and they perform terrible. When I was younger, you know, a young man, like say five, six, seven years of age, older people weren't so riddled with chronic disease, not as bad as they are today, obesity skyrocketing, but they were still bad. And we respected the elderly, you know, more than we do today. Today, nobody visits the elderly. They sit in, you know, nursing homes, uh, senior care centers, Uh, The door opens, every face turns to the door to see if it's somebody coming to visit them. Very, very sad situations. And the older people can't impart knowledge the way they used to because their face and their body says, pay no attention to me. I don't know how to live well. I haven't lived well. But you want to, to be a better influencer. And if you're, you know, on Instagram, you're 
uh, and social media and you want to be an ultimate influencer for longer, then you better maintain your health by having a better appearance. And I'm not talking makeup because that's only going to work for so long. You also need to have high performance and all the makeup in the world and, and clothing is not going to help you perform better. So you have to figure out how you live, lifestyle choices. And that's why I really like social media and your space and what people are doing to help bring attention and awareness that it's all about lifestyle choices to influence how healthy you are. This next clip is taken from episode 323, released on August 17th, 2022, titled Our Hunter-Gatherer Evolution with Dr. Mickey Bendor. The thing I love about your work is it is unifying across so many different disciplines. It makes sense nutritionally. It makes sense, you know, location-wise, where we came from. It makes sense in the body and the anatomy and how, you know, we have the large intestine, small intestine, the the stomach is city. I, we could go on and on, and we talked about this at length last time, but it, the, when I hear your ideas about evolution, they check so many boxes, and when I hear other people's, it's almost like they'll say something, and then I'll have like 10 more questions, like, okay, that, I don't, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. And and so so I, I really appreciate you approached it in a way that that covers all the different bases. Yeah, you see the, the sad part is that uh, archaeologists or paleoanthropologists cannot tell you from the data that they are dealing with what was the what were the quantities the relative quantities. They can tell you what people ate, and they can tell you. Let's say from some areas in the last 50,000 years that the stable isotopes so show that they were carnivores. Uh, this is uh, indisputable, I think. But uh, that's, that uh, method goes back only 50,000 years and humans go back 2 million years. So, so really, if you want to find quantitative uh, ratios, you have to go to other areas. It's not, it's not in the archaeological record. Because what archaeologists do is just dig and find bones and find sometimes seeds. Uh, you know, sometimes they find uh, marks of uh, wood working with the stone tools. Uh, sometimes they find other. So, so yeah, they find in, in the teeth, for instance, uh, they find the uh, uh, remnants of uh, of uh, plant food, so they can eat. They can say yes, they ate, and this makes sense. I mean, why wouldn't they? Uh, but how much? That is difficult, and that's almost impossible. So, what people, what they used to do, paleoanthropologists, is go back to hunter gatherers of today. It says, oh look, in Africa we have this tree with. Uh, this uh, Hadza tribe that lives very close to uh, where the first humans were found. So it must be, if he eats 30% meat, then that's the, that's the, that's the quantity. But that's not, uh, it just, uh, I, don't, I don't want to say stupid, but it's, it just don't make sense. It's not the same environment. It's not the same technology. Uh, these people speak two languages because they have neighbors that are farmers. Uh, you know, they're so involved. 
they use they use uh, uh, they use iron, you know, iron in their uh, in their uh, spears and and in their arrows. That's crazy, and they cook with the utensils. So I mean, the whole thing is crazy to say that you can draw an analogy from this Hadza to one and a half million years ago is absolutely, uh, you know, it doesn't make sense. It yeah. doesn't make sense at all. Yeah, well, I'm so glad you brought that up because I was listening specifically to an interview that you gave on a different podcast. Um, I believe it was called the Live Damn Well podcast. Really entertaining. I really enjoy it. And he, after he interviewed you, also interviewed um, uh, somebody that, that focused on how we evolved and, and dentition. Basically, they're looking at the teeth and scratch marks and whatever to see how we evolved and the things we ate there. And he conceded as well that, yes, we're omnivores, but but when the, the host pushed back against him and said, like, you know, what do you what do you have to say when if you kill an animal you get you know thousands and thousands and thousands of calories that can keep a tribe alive for a very very long time versus if you're eating plants you know nu- nutritionally you're you're going to be deficient and also um, calorie for calorie it's not really worth it and the guy said no absolutely not hunting is not worth it because he was with the Hadza the Hadza men would go out and hunt sometimes they wouldn't come back with the animal and he said, well, the women are just sitting around, you know, not wasting a lot of energy. They're picking the tubers, so they're the ones feeding the family. And so hunting is a complete waste of calories. And I got to tell you, man, my bullshit, my bullshit alert, you know, antenna just went way off. Like that to me makes zero sense. It's crazy. I was, I was, uh, I visited the Hadza well, maybe half a year ago. No, a little bit more. Last year, same time, more or less last year. And you see on, on the ground, what you see is the droppings of cows. These are the main animals that they live among because they, the neighbors, they are cow herders. Yeah. The, the, the landscape, look, uh, it's like thorny, many thorny, uh, it's covered with thorny bush. Wow. And then you go to Ngorongoro, right next to it, not far from it. I don't know if uh, people know this. This is like a, a very nice uh, game reserve, right? It's a crater. It's a huge crater. And uh, there are no food. There are no plant food in Ngorongoro to speak of, but there are a lot of uh, grass and a lot of animals. And, and But they are not allowed, of course, to hunt there. They are not allowed to hunt elephants. So they go in this uh, area where really they have nothing. They just were pushed to, to that area. It's a marginal area. In a normal time, they wouldn't be there at all. And the area wouldn't look like it because it can look like it only if you don't, if you have cows <laughs> and you don't have elephants. Elephants actually create savanna. Elephant and and Average elephant in uh, in South Africa, game uh, <clears throat> reserve, killed about sixteen hundred trees a year. Wow! Just one elephant. Yeah, that's the average elephant. So they are like farmers. They clear the land. Uh, <clears throat> so if they are not around, you know, and they are not around where the hazel live, 
the whole the whole environment is completely different. And by the way, even so, even so, this the data that we have today show that the return, energetic return, on hunting animals is I just I jump, I'm just writing a paper to or just finish it on uh, the reason for fire. So that the the old papers or the old hypotheses were that fire was developed to cook a food. Yeah. And that was the main contribution of the fire. But really, if you look, the return on the plants is about the average return that we, the data we have from present hunter-gatherers is 14, 1,400 calories per hour of work. The return on hunting is more than 10 times that. Wow. So uh, humans with a limited budget, you know, you have to, you have a limited energetic budget. You have to spend it. It's like going to the supermarket and uh, suddenly something costs 10 times more than the other. And you, you have to build, to buy it with the same budget. Would you buy it? It's crazy. Absolutely crazy. Wow. So, so my, my uh, hypothesis right now is that humans uh, built fires to protect from predators. Because if a predator takes a prey, and they used to hunt big prey, a big prey can last a week, two weeks, three weeks, and they have to gorge on it for three weeks. Uh, other predators don't do it. Other predators like finish it and then, uh, you know, and they fight over it and all that stuff. And it all happened in a matter of hours. Human sit with the prey and they have to protect it. So for three, for three weeks. So the simplest way would be to make fire. And this also will justify the cost of collecting the wood. Again, energetic cost, which are, they are, of collecting the wood. So cooking, even if the if the net return is let's say fourteen hundred calories per hour, so cooking can contribute twenty percent, thirty percent to increase what is meager. It's a meager amount. So cooking, fire, going into fire, maintaining fire just for cooking, I don't think it may, does make sense in the context of having large animals as prey. Wow. That is so fascinating. Yeah, that's so fascinating. This next clip is from episode 363, released on November 2nd, 2022, titled Treatment of Revenue Generating Diseases with Dr. Thomas Seyfried. So let's talk cancer specifically. The last time we had you on was about 20 months ago. You have talked about this and written about this, which I absolutely love. In that time, we've managed to launch a giant telescope a million miles into the air that's taking these most incredible pictures, looking back literally billions and billions of years to the beginning of the universe. That that telescope could spot a penny from my house in South Jordan, Utah, 20 miles away at the University of Utah. Could spot a penny. Amazing advances and all kinds of different things. And so I brought you on to tell us all of the amazing advancements in our cancer treatment. Well, you know, I used that same uh, opening for our new big paper that just came out in, um, in oncology, uh, Frontiers in Oncology. Uh, 
where where I, I in, in the case of glioblastoma, the very deadly brain cancer that uh, killed Ted Kennedy here in Massachusetts, John McCain in Arizona, and President Biden's son, Bo Biden, they all died. And many, 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 many others have died from glioblastoma, uh, a, a brain cancer. And in my opening uh, paragraphs, I actually indicated that considering cons uh, there has been no major advance in uh, improving survival for glioblastoma in 100 years. Okay, so I said, consider all the advances in science and technology that have happened in this country in 100 years, and you're still dealing with a tumor where you've made no advances. And the Webb telescope is an exact example. You have a telescope that now can see the origins of the universe in, in, in the way it works, and it's orbiting a million miles from Earth. What a technological achievement. And yet, you have made no advance in keeping people alive that have glioblastoma and many other advanced like lung cancer, pancreatic cancer, you can go down the list. Uh, why are we making no advances in cancer when we make so many advances in other parts uh, 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 of our society, right? And the answer is um, the, 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 the theory that drives the field for cancer management is incorrect. They're working on an incorrect theory as to what the nature of the disease actually is. So when the theory is wrong, there will be no advance. So the current theory of cancer today is the somatic mutation theory, which is sponsored by the National Institutes of Health and National Cancer Institute, all the major pharmaceutical companies, all the major academic institutions throughout the world are treating and developing drugs for cancer based on the somatic mutation theory. And that says that cancer is caused by random mutations that lead to a dysregulated cell growth. Okay, this is incorrect. We now know that cancer is a mitochondrial metabolic disease driven by abnormal energy metabolism because the organelle in the cell the cancer cell is defective, the mitochondria. Therefore, the cell must ferment. It can't use oxygen for energy. So it uses a fermentation mechanism. Well, now everything can become very, very simple because there's only two fermentable fuels that we have defined as the sugar glucose and the amino acid glutamine. These are the two prime fermentable fuels driving cancer, all cancers. They're all very similar in being fermentative. So all we have to do is target the availability of these two fuels while transitioning the body over to a non-fermentable fuel, which is ketone bodies and fatty acids. Cancer cells can't use those fuels because the mitochondria are defective. The problem with this, what I just told you, it's, it's too simple and no one has yet come up with a business model to how, how we can replace the revenue generation. I even said this in the paper. How do we re replace revenue generation? Uh, with, a meta, with metabolic therapy. There's no business model for metabolic therapy, even if it works and we can, we can reduce cancer. Like Biden said the other day, the president said, we want to reduce cancer deaths by 50% in 25 years. That's what he said uh, uh, last week here uh, when he was visiting Boston. And I, I said, we can do that in 10 years, uh, just maybe less, five years. 
we just have to change the 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 the, the theory and the theory. Let, let me tell you something. We uh, for uh, one thousand four hundred years, it was thought by astronomers that the Earth was the center of the solar system, and the astronomers were trying to figure out the movement of the celestial bodies with the Earth as the center of the solar system. And 1,400 years of epicycles could not figure out all the changes that would occur in these celestial bodies in their orbits using the Earth as the center of the solar system. As soon as Copernicus, Galileo, and Kepler put the sun in the center of the solar system, everything made sense. It was a simple model. Everything made sense. But we had to uh, uh, kill Giordano Bruno, hold him upside down, burn him to death, because he he supported the um, uh, the Copernican model, um, but we had to go 1,400 years before the church and other institutions finally realized, hey, we made a mistake. Um, how long is it going to take before the cancer industry recognizes that cancer is not a genetic disease? It's a mitochondrial metabolic disease, and once the theory changes, the solutions will be apparent easy, non-toxic, and will save thousands, millions of lives. Yeah. But we can't change that theory because there's no replacement business model. Can you believe this? It's crazy. And yeah, but that's the truth. And that's the, that's the God's honest truth. There is no business model to drop the cancer death rate that we already have in place. You know, so, and when you tell people this, oh, they get really upset. I don't believe it. Where's the clinical trial? Blah, blah, blah. They don't even want to look at the evidence to support what I just said. This next clip is taken from an interview that I gave recently on the Pain Changer podcast with Katie Wrigley. We also interviewed her, so be on the lookout for a future episode of Balanced Body Radio that will feature Katie Wrigley and her amazing host as the Pain Changer. We had some technical issues during this episode, and half of the podcast was lost due to um, a Zoom mishap. Uh, this was from the first half of the interview that was recovered. Katie does not necessarily have a background in carnivore diets, and she, so she was asking like really genuine questions, which I really appreciated and appreciated the opportunity to talk about. So I wanted to include this clip here as well. We just, we had this weird change. So we just, we gave up a lot of things. It was about 12,000 years ago, for whatever reason, in different parts of the planet, we started the cultivation of grains and that was our domestication. We domesticated grains and the grains in turn domesticated us. We started living in cities. We, um, you know, we now were able to create a commodity which is a grain. This is a storable energy source that you can keep around now all year round. So with a commodity, well, now you need governments. Now you need protection. You need military. You need land now becomes very, very important. This is a start of civilization. And now we're going to start fighting other people that want to take our land for resources because you need those resources. If I'm killing one animal and sharing it with my group, there's no need for any of that. And when we look at indigenous populations that still eat the way they're supposed to eat, they don't they don't know what time of day it is. They don't care about money. There's no need for them to take more resources than they need. They go out, they get the food they need. They share it. They sing, they dance. They don't work very hard at all. <laughs> <laughs> and and we, we gave that up for, again, whatever reason, whether it was to, again, have the commodity to do increased power. Some people argue that it was to ferment those carbohydrates and, and have alcohol. 
So hard to say. And again, that happened with different plants in different parts of the world, the corn thing in South America and uh, different grasses and wheat in um, kind of the, the Persian area, all kinds of different things in different places. Um, I will say there is evidence in Egyptians having heart disease. Um, and so a lot of times since they were mummified, we've been able to go in and take a look at those, um, those mummies and they did have heart disease. They had lesions. Um, they did have some blockages, but people, and people will say like, oh, see, it's a prehistoric, you know, people that's eating this certain way. And it's like, no, 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 they were historic. They were eating cereal grains, a high amount of cereal grains. We could tell that they were overweight, some of them. So yeah, I, when we introduced grains into our diets, we did the exact wrong thing that we should have done. And we stayed on that. We stayed on that until really, and that was more of like a gradual shift that happened over time. The The thing that happened like really suddenly and acutely was the industrial revolution. Uh, revolution. And so when we started living more in cities, we started to process and package food. That was when our food system really changed. We, we introduced seed oils um, about a hundred years ago. Um, so these are the oils extracted um, chemically and mechanically from seeds. So think of canola seeds, um, think of corn oil, what's known as vegetable oil. It's hilarious. Every vegetable oil you see in the store, rows and rows and rows of vegetable oil, not one drop comes from vegetables. Think about that. Not a single drop. Yuck. In, in Germany, they figured out how to hydrogenize these oils. So backing up, polyunsaturated fats are the liquid fats and plants use them to protect their seeds. So okay. it's not a natural fat. If you take a, a, a seed of something, you can't see, you can't squeeze it and have fat. If you took an avocado, you'd squeeze it and you'd have fat oozing out of your fingers. Totally different. So we figure out how to extract these oils that were going bad. They were going rancid. Um, polyunsaturated fats, they, they go rancid very quickly with light, heat, and air. And so we invented cotton gins. So now we're making a lot more cotton, which means now we have a lot more cotton seeds. They're sitting around. They're going bad. We don't know what to do with them. So we figure out a process. Maybe we can make them into a wax for candles or you know machinery, lubricant, or whatever. And we figure out hydrogenation. And in 1911, Procter & Gamble introduced to the world Crisco. Crisco stands for crystallized cottonseed. Crisco. Ew. Um, originally, it was called Crist, I think, but it looked too much like Christ. And so they backed away from that. <laughs> and they were smart. Procter & Gamble has been in the nutrition game for a long time. They've been getting people to eat their products. They have been in bed, literally in bed with the American Heart Association since 1947, paid off so the American Heart Association did this to this day. I'm not joking. It says that plant oils are good for you, these seed oils. And they were really smart. They knew their marketing. And so they sent the mothers in America cookbooks that said, we have this amazing white fat. It will make your cookies crisp. It will make your cakes rise. It's made in stainless steel vats. I think our dairy industry at the time was a little bit of a, a shit show. It was mostly in cities and there was lots of problems. So this was an alternative to that. And we started eating more of these seed oils. And they, 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 you know, we started inventing more and more of them. Canola was invented. I would encourage the listener to go on your YouTube and look up how it's made canola oil. Look that up. Ooh. Love the show. The, the, how it's made show is fascinating. I used to love it. I think it's like 10 years old, how basketball so is bicycles. It's so good. You see these seeds extracted, chemicalized. It looks like sludge. It's treated with hexane, I want to say. It's bleached. It's cooked at very high temperatures, and then it's placed in this nice little plastic bottle. It's completely oxidized, which is then going to go into fry pans and fry buckets all over the country and in everybody's homes. It is completely toxic, 
completely toxic. Between that, having a lot more grains, and then also, you know, in the 1800s, really boosting the amount of sugar that we consume, we started getting it from different sources and beets rather than just cane. So then we could have more of it and ship it around everywhere, got everybody addicted on sugar. Those things have changed very recently. And we, we sit around and we wonder, why have we been telling everybody to limit their saturated fat? Why are we telling people to eat margarine instead of butter? Why are we telling people that red meat is bad for us and to eat all of this processed crap several times a day that includes sugar and grains and, and vegetable oils? And we're surprised that heart rate, her heart attacks are on the rise and is still the number one killer in America, even though we addressed this in the 1950s. We told everybody, cholesterol is bad for you. Saturated, bad, saturated fat has cholesterol. It's bad for you. It's going to clog your arteries. It's insane. It's insane. It, it, it's, it's the craziest story. And people believe it and they try their hardest and they do it and they, they fail. They gain weight and they come to us in the health industry and we tell them, wow, you're just eating too much. You're not exercising enough. Go hit the treadmill, go on a diet. And they do and it fails and they come back and they spend more money and they get sick and they become prescribed medications and <laughs> procedures and surgeries and all of this bullshit nonsense. We changed the diet a lot. Like a hundred years ago, we have a very sick society. We have a medical system that is a business. The medical system has to keep you as a customer. It needs to make sure that you're sick and has to give you those prescriptions and yep. keep you coming back to the doctor, but it also can't kill you. Can't yep. kill you in your twenties yep. when we're prescribing. We need yep. to keep you alive. And that's what yep. we're good at. I can make sure that you will be prescribed medication from age 20 until age 90. So you have this terrible suffering life of all of these procedures of not getting to do what you need to do. And then again, we go back and blame the foods that were the essential part of our diet for hundreds of thousands of years. It's bananas. It's absolutely crazy. It is. And the thing that I heard there every step of the way is, oh, Step one, someone profits. Step two, someone profits. Step three, someone profits. The person not profiting is the person going through hell. It sucks. This final clip is my absolute favorite clip that we are including here from my absolute favorite episode, which is episode 353, released on October 16th, 2022, featuring my wife and titled A Week of Dissecting Cadavers with Bethany Ruff. What was it like to to take in so much information about the human body? It's just just incredible of how we can move ourselves without having to tell. Like you just asked me that question and I'm sitting across from you and your left shoulder shrugged and you talked with your right hand and you just moved it. But your brain that you're aware of didn't tell you, hey, let's shrug this left shoulder. Let's move my right hand. But it happened. And so there's this fluid and fiber and this like dance going on in your body. And to be honest with you, I still don't fully understand how it all can just happen, but it just happens. And so we take our movement for granted. We take all this intelligence in our system for granted. You can do all the things you need to do in life. You can express, you can connect with me by, by using your body to communicate and you weren't any wiser that you were doing it mm. and it moved your shoulder shrugged. Do you know how many tissues in your body just had to work in order to make that happen? It's, it's amazing. And we're still breathing and we're still talking and we're still maintaining homeostasis in life. 
And that is a gift that we're just literally just placed in this world to have. And we never, most of us never think about it. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. I think about one of my favorite parts in one of my favorite books, Go Wild, where they make the point that we have already created computers that can beat us in chess. Like they can outthink us in a game that's based purely on skill and is totally equal both ways, but we will never be able to develop a computer or a robot that will be able to articulate and move a chess piece with the ease and grace that a human can do. And you think about some of those movements that we take for granted, the shrugging of the shoulder, walking down the sidewalk, opening a door, like they're so, those are so complex when you really break them down and think about it, yet we do them without really even having to think about it. Yeah, it's and just kind of, putting all that together and what you just said, I don't want to live in a world where that does eventually happen because so much of our movement and facial expression we've adapted through our genetic makeup over time. Like what an, why we have eyebrows, right? So some of that's going to be sweat retention. So it's not getting into the eyes, but the other is when you change the orientation of your eyebrow, it pulls against another tissue that then gives me a different expression that I get to read across your face and my brains and taking what your brain is putting out, whether you are intentionally doing it, whether you're thinking about it, but robots, what they're not going to have is the, the type of human intention that we have. And so we're motivated by what we feel, what we need, that's how we connect with each other. That's how we dispute with each other. That's how the greatest wars in the world ever happen. That's how peace ever happened. That's how human life gets created. It's this, it's this dance, this interaction. I don't have a better word for it. This, I think I said to you on the phone, this orchestra, this beautiful symphony that's always happening. And as soon as one person with one instrument starts playing a little bit out of tune or pitch, it throws the entire orchestra off. And, you know, you can just feel that. You can feel when someone's being authentic with you. You can feel based on the tone of their voice. Are they being honest or are they withholding some truth? Are they connecting with us? Or are they keeping us at arm's length? You don't have to say that to another human. You feel that. And it's not your brain usually that's telling you in the, in the system what to do. It's all these biomechanical autonomic processes that are just happening. Mm. And that's... Absolutely. I mean, how how do you not think that that's the most incredible thing you've ever heard? Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. So as the week was kind of winding down, how were you feeling emotionally knowing that this would be kind of the last, you know, day or two that you had left with your person that you were dissecting? There's a huge part of you that's just very cerebr- cerebrally burnt out and you're trying to kind of retain whatever you can. And for me, at least the other elements like the long drive and sleeping in a different bed. And I'm a very routine based person, so I don't thrive with a whole lot of change, but just all of that compounded by the end. I don't know that I could have done another day, but there was also this, I don't know if sadness or maybe it was just me. I tend to like cling to things. I don't love that about myself, but just to, you create, you cannot create this very intimate relationship with this person that you've just worked on, worked with all week. And you get down to the place where you don't have any more that you can do and that you just have to kind of thank her. The job is done. It's complete. It's good. And you're on to your next experience. And for me, I knew that I was going to be sleep deprived. I knew I was going to need some time for all of this to set in. 
but I also intentionally booked as many clients as I could for the very next day when I, when I returned because I wanted to apply and just feel and see and interact with humans in a different way. And I'm glad that I did that. Yeah. How is this, how is this week going to change the way you work with people? And I will say on like a physical level, like what practical things did you learn about the body that's going to now change your work either as a trainer or as a, you know, a Pilates instructor or as a a roster practitioner helping people get out of pain? I've been thinking about that a ton, a ton. Like what would I, in, in a synopsis, what would I say to my clients of like, this is how my session is going to be different. And I, I really like, I've been ruminating over that for the last six days and I don't know, I don't know that yet. But what I do know is a lot of questions were answered in a way of, I had to just, you just picture what you've never seen before, right? You've never seen a black dog. You're going to picture what you think a black dog looks like until you've seen a black dog. It's when I can, I can now almost like a little bit of x-ray vision, I guess. I was just watching my own hand, like gripping things after day one. And I could see what that would look like from the inside, not to perfection, not how every fiber crosses over every fiber, but, but the big parts, the way that we're all wired and all that truly has to happen in order for a simple grabbing of something where it was a little bit more mechanical and I was a bit more ignorant to what was happening inside. So if nothing else, it's, I, I don't know, even when my tone of voice, I feel like I'm going slower. I feel like I'm more present, more in the moment, more, I want to help someone out of pain. Yes. I want them to get as much value as they possibly can in a 60 minute session. Yes. But it's becoming more important for me that the questions I have will be answered when I listen, when I slow down, when I feel, because slow is smooth and smooth is fast. No point in rushing to get as many techniques as you can or, expecting you or this other person that you've maybe never met before to have this perfect dance with each other where we, we get them out of all the pain that they ever have had, but it's, I'm here. I'm, I'm like you, I'm with you. You're not in this experience of life and pain and comfort or discomfort alone. We are all stemming from the same type of person. I don't care what size you are. I don't care what color you are. I don't care what your background is. I don't care how you move or how you don't move. We are all very, very similar. And I, I, I feel like that can only help me physically, mentally, and emotionally connect to the people that I'm around in the grocery store, the people I step on, you, everyone. Mm-hmm. Well, that was going to be my next question is not only how is this week going to impact practically your training day to day and your sessions day to day, but how is it going to impact you as a human? What do you want to take from this experience and put into your life, whether you're working on somebody or not, just kind of like the day to day? I think this is a really good time. I told Casey before we started this, it was something that I read to him that my biggest takeaway is nothing is permanent. And there was this quote by Jeff Foster that I'm about to read for you that brought Casey to tears. It made me choke up. It, it's one of those that it's it's a not a one-liner, but it's one that will really hit you right in the feels. So 
if you're in an opportunity, if you're listening to this, if we get any listeners, that's not like me and you and my mom. Um, <laughs> if you're listening to this and you have an opportunity to just kind of pause what you're doing for a moment, I would really love for this to sink, sink in for you because it really did a lot for me. So this is called You Will Lose Everything. You will lose everything. Your money, your power, your fame, your success, perhaps even your memories. Your looks will go. Loved ones will die. Your body will fall apart. Everything that seems permanent is impermanent and will be smashed. Experience will gradually or not so gradually strip away everything that it can strip away. Waking up means facing this reality with open eyes and no longer turning away. But right now, we stand on sacred and holy ground, for that which will be lost has not yet been lost, and realizing this is the key to unspeakable joy. Whoever or whatever is in your life right now has not yet been taken away from you. This may sound trivial, obvious, like nothing, but really... It is the key to everything, the why and how and wherefore of existence. Impermanence has already rendered everything and everyone around you so deeply holy and significant and worthy of your heartbreaking gratitude. Loss has already transfigured your life into an altar. Mm. So the things that you care about right now, the things that feel heavy and unchangeable the areas in which you feel stuck in your life or emotionally or mentally it's very hard and i will mess this up time and time and time again i'll forget and remember and forget and remember whatever it is you're going through it's not going to be forever and some things you're like well great i don't think i could have taken another day of that and some things you're going to cling to but we don't own any of this we're just here right now and we're incredibly more fortunate to be here right now in this vessel to experience this magnitude of brilliance that is life. And we're, we're just fortunate to have it. So don't hold on to it tighter, but just notice it. Because as soon as you notice it, that moment's gone and then that one's gone. And for me, I've always struggled with meditation. I've struggled with being present in things. I've wanted to soak up all the good and push away all the bad. And that's not life. And when you can realize that nothing is permanent and you will lose everything, including yourself, you just get to enjoy being here. At the close of one year and the beginning of a new year, I just wanted to make sure to thank you, the listener, for all of your support and for listening to our show. 2022 was an amazing year that saw lots of growth with the podcast, but also came with amazing results with the people that we get to work with in our business, Boundless Body. We began our business during the confusion of the 2020 pandemic and opened up in July of that year. And we've been absolutely amazed with how things have gone. It was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears and a lot of building the plane as we were flying it, but it's turned out amazing. We just absolutely love seeing our 
clients get amazing results. We love seeing all the great feedback and positive reviews that come through on Apple. So if you haven't already, please leave us a review there on Apple as it's the best way for the show to continue to grow and impact the lives of people all over the world. We're super excited for 2023. We already have lots of great guests and topics lined up, and we have no intention of slowing down our releases anytime soon. Also, feel free to check out our premium content, which we post on Patreon. There you will find our extended and unedited episodes, which we post on the day of recording. So you actually don't have to wait for the edited version of the podcast to release, which can sometimes be several weeks, actually. And on Patreon, you will also find the Boundless Body Radio premium podcast. This was my special project this year. I really wanted to combine all of the very best clips about one topic from our show to combine into extended episodes that take a very deep dive into a topic. I've created two separate topics as a masterclass that are three episodes each. One is all about the macronutrients and the second is all about keto and ketogenic diets. That way you can get a fantastic education from some of our amazing guests in a format that can help you zero in on the topic that you are most interested in. Something I'm very proud of and believe that we are sharing this content for a very high value. Remember that you can also book a complimentary 30-minute session with us on our website at myboundlessbody.com. And thank you again so very much for listening to Boundless Body Radio.